Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, Darren. I'm smiling. How are you? Though, is your heart breaking, Andrew? Even though it's aching? Yes. Yes, we, we, we may have watched the Charlie Chaplin movie. We may have indeed. We may have been this week discussing Charlie Chaplin's 1936 Modern Times. And we have a very special guest joining us for this discussion, the wonderful Dean Buckley from The Sunday. How are you, Dean? I'm grand. How are you? Ah, we're getting by. We're getting by. We're very glad to be talking about this film. What's interesting about this is we were introduced again, like we had your your co-founder of The Sunday, Kieran, last week, introduced by Luke Dunn from Film in Dublin. And I got in touch with you over email and we had a conversation and you were like, so what haven't you covered on the list? And I sent you through a list that is surprisingly long for a podcast <laughs> in its sixth year. Surprisingly long and always changing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you got back with a number of suggestions and some of them we're hoping to do maybe later in the year. But one that jumped out at you was Modern Times. What was it about Modern Times that when you saw it on the list, you're like, yes, that's a film I want to talk about? Well, I suppose the simplest reason is uh, for a long time I would have like a, a top five. I don't bother maintaining one anymore, uh, but always classically in my top five, right in there, number four, modern times. So you see, you see your number four film, you take your number four film. But also, I just I do kind of think that like uh, modern times is both uh, timeless and also timelessly relevant at the same time. And I thought it would it'd just be interesting to talk about in relation to, uh, I don't know, current conditions, I guess. <laughs> yes, it is a very, yeah, it's, very, very... It's a movie that's not afraid to kind of like deal with lots of stuff. Mm. You know, the, um, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's going to touch them all. All the hot buttons. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. but, well, I mean... Like, this is probably something to talk about when we get into like the spoiler zone and stuff like that, but one of the big controversies when it was released was that this was a film that was deemed too political. It was Chaplin getting a bit too big for his proverbial britches, which is ironic because the tramp has always been too small for his britches <laughs> in many ways. Um, but like it, it was very much a movie that was perceived at the time as being... His literal big look britches at- are too big for his small britches. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm 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 having difficulty parsing. <laughs> I, I, I did mix several metaphors there, and I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, no, this is the movie that when it was released, a lot of people were like, "Yeah, look at the comedian making a comment about the kind of world in which we live, doing something important, engaging in social commentary." But Dean, I have to ask right before we go any further. This is a podcast about lists, and normally when I ask people like to rank movies, they're like, "I don't ever really rank movies. I don't have a lot of ranking." What else was in the top five? Like, back of the time. Okay, well, you your listeners can't see, but uh, you might be able to see. I have a poster of Brazil on my wall there. That would be number one. Uh, then uh, The Apartment and uh, Yojimbo and Speed Racer. One of those is very different from the others. <laughs> <laughs> listeners can't see, but Dean, Dean has five posters of movies behind him with numbers above them. <laughs> Helpfully ranked, and like each of them gets bigger as well. I don't know how he scaled them um, to size. But okay, do you remember the first time that you saw Modern Times? Like, did you seek it out? Was it something you saw when you were young? How did you first come across it? It was actually Kira, my co-host, uh, kind of turned me on to Chaplin. 
back in college and I don't re- really remember the circumstances of when I watched it but I definitely remember the feeling of watching it and going oh they could make films like this back then like that was that was at the time when I was still kind of learning how actually advanced early cinema was and how actually they took a massive step back when they went into sound <laughs> and they had to stop moving cameras <laughs> and uh yeah I just I just it was just one of those one of those films where you really just like I know it's cliche, but the magic of of cinema like just like it just caught me. Absolutely, it's actually a shame that we're we're not recording in person because you guys could bond over your um, Brazil uh, posters. Yes, posters. Darren, oh, really? His house has also got a the, a, a Brazil a, poster. Nice. Yeah. nice. I, I know it's it's like myself and Dean are the same person, really. Um, <laughs> but no, you're, Speed you're... Racer is not my fifth favorite film of all time. That's that's the moment where the two of us diverge. That, um, that's the the like the live action sixth. Speed Racer. Oh yeah, yes. <laughs> Yours it's number six on your list, Darren. Is that yes, what it's behind Cloud Atlas on mine, but unfortunately. It, it might be a cliche, but it's it's the magic of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> What you don't realize when you watch Speed Racer in 2020 is that how, how much cinema took a step backwards uh, in 2008. Um, but there is actually, that's a very valid argument, but we don't have time to get yeah, into it yeah. now, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit about Modern Times, because Modern Times is interesting. Because so last week we... <laughs> Last last week we had Kira on and we talked about um, It Happened One Night, which is generally regarded, you know, it's from two years before modern times. Mm. It's generally regarded, you know, people point to it as the birth of the modern romantic comedy, the birth of the screwball comedy, the start of something new in Hollywood that was going to sweep through and going to become standard for the next 10, 20 years in the screwball genre and standard for the next, you know, 80 odd years uh, when it comes to romantic comedies. Mm. What's interesting about doing Modern Times directly after that is that this is a movie released two years later and many people point to it as the last silent film. It is the end of a particular kind of Hollywood production. And I want to ask, actually, Dean, this is the highest ranked Chaplin on the list. This is currently, I think it's number 40 at the moment. Um, Do you think this is Chaplin's best movie? Is this like the apotheosis of Chaplin as a filmmaker? Well, I'll have to admit I haven't seen all of Chaplin's films. I haven't seen anything from his talkie era, basically. Um, but certainly from his silent era. I mean, it's this or City Lights. And it, it, honestly, even for me, some days I'm like... Some days I'm feeling more romantic and then it's City Lights. Uh, but most days I'm feeling angry at the world and it's modern times. <laughs> um, that's actually a nice kind of jump way into like just some, some background context in terms of modern times. Because obviously, uh, modern times was the first film produced. You mentioned City Lights, which was produced in 1931. So he took five years off after that. And I do love, by the way, that Saul Asterlitz makes a point that like to make a silent film in 1931, four years after Jazz Singer, was to buck the trend in a film industry rapidly divesting itself of silence. To make another in 1936, nearly a decade after the advent of sound, appeared downright perverse (laughs) Um, but like what the origins according to Chaplin of modern times were the world tour that he embarked on um, after making 
uh, City Lights. So he took it around the world. He went around the world. He did this tour where he met with statesmen like Churchill. He met with Gandhi. He met with Einstein, actually, at one of the premieres of kind of City Lights. And he began to be kind of photographed and kind of seen as an intellectual. In fact, actually, when he went to uh, the UK and he met with Churchill, he was seen as being something of kind of like a, a liberal commentator, a kind of a, a left-wing political figure who had important pronouncements to make about the world. Well, I'd say you Churchill kind of, loved him. <laughs> <laughs> Two of them got on like a house yeah. on fire. Churchill, um, Churchill, uh, like famously tolerant of <laughs> anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the the, um, the uh, political kind of revolutionaries. Um, Reynolds newspaper described his ideology as left-wing labor. The Sphere described him as a radical millionaire. The Weekly Dispatch, reporting on Chaplin's meeting with Ramsay MacDonald, then leader of minority labor, labor government, wrote it up as a summit between two heads of state with Chaplin as the film premiere of mirth. In the photograph, the two men look serious as if discussing whether Britain should become off the gold standard. Perhaps they were. <laughs> when Chaplin met Albert Einstein a few weeks later, he bent his ear about price controls and quantitative easing. You're not a comedian, said Einstein. You're an economist. There's another great quote from Einstein and Chaplin, probably apocryphal, but still fun to play with. Einstein saying, what I most admire about your art, Chaplin, is your universality. You don't say a word and yet the world understands you. And Chaplin responds, true, but your glory is even greater. The whole world admires you, even though they don't understand a word that you say. Um, but you have this kind of like intellectual heavyweight tour of Chaplin, like in 1931 after City Lights and into 1932. And what he points to specifically as the moment at which something switched in his head and he said, I have the genesis of a new movie I want to make, is when he met Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, and Chaplin you know, admitted that you know, he was confused by Gandhi's abhorrence of machinery because Chaplin believed that it could release man from the bondage of slavery if altruistically used. And Gandhi pointed out that machinery had made India dependent on England. So, and this is a quote, we must make ourselves independent of it if we are to gain our freedom. And that is basically kind of like what, you know, sort of what Chaplin looks at and says, that was the moment at which I decided I was going to make a movie, Modern Times, because, and this is another quote here, Machinery should benefit mankind. It should not spell tragedy or throw it out of work. Um, so again, it's it's kind of fascinating that this is a, a movie like made by a man who began on vaudeville, who kind of like honed himself as a comedian, this kind of populist comedic entertainer, using it to say something profound um, it, about the world. It's interesting that all those like people he met were like similarly iconic. You know, that you can like silhouette them like or that they have they have their props, you know, yeah. that they that um, that like Churchill with a cigar or like the uh, Gandhi with his loincloth or like, uh, Einstein uh, with his hair and mustache. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. How, how, how like they, they they game recognizes game. <laughs> he was like the real conversation was, I like your tiny little mustache and your hat. I like your, your big mustache. I like your big mustache. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then just had to kind of make it sound more important to the press afterwards. <laughs> um, but all right. So just before we jump into the spoiler zone, before we kind of like talk about this movie in depth, Dean, you kind of single this out as a movie you want to talk about. What is your like suitcase pitch for the movie? Like, what is your argument for this movie as your fourth favorite film of all time? 
just broadly? I guess um, the easiest way to put it is that I've had this long time dream of putting uh, Modern Times, The Apartment and Brazil on at a film festival and calling it Love in the Age of Capital. It's it's something that's... Uh, have, the idea that this was Chaplin getting political is not untrue, but also if you watch all of Chaplin's films... They're all kind of about the struggle to live a dignified, humane life in a world of poverty and, like, control. Like, police are always the bad guys in his films, even if the extent to which they're the bad guys, mainly they're just chasing him for the most part. In this film, obviously, they do a bit more than that. But um, I just... There's something about um, the kind of marriage of... Horror is a too strong a word, but there is a, a lot of things in this that objectively are horrifying. But obviously, the way they presented the they're, they're presented are are hilarious, and it's this is kind of what I think makes, for me anyway, Chaplin. And this is going to be a controversial one: the greatest of the Chaplin, Keaton, uh, Lloyd trinity. Um, this way he used like 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 you you wince when you laugh at the tramp half the time because you're like oh the poor fella and you're you feel bad for laughing you double down in your sympathy for him and it maybe in this film more than any you're constantly laughing at these horrible things happening to this poor man and you just really end up feeling for even though objectively he's a ridiculous man who's like like on a basic narrative level causing as much of his own problems as as the world is but still the way it presents the world like the world in modern times is a really horrible horrible place and and the tramp makes you laugh but also the whole time you're like ah the poor fella and just so how do I put it I, I definitely agree with you yeah, like they, 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 like I was laughing out loud, but definitely, they, like the, you, you, you know, you come for the laughs, you stay for the pathos. Yeah, and that he re- really like brings that, and not, not, not just in this movie. I, I, I think that that you're, 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 you're absolutely right, Dean. That's the kind of the power of the yeah. tramp as, as, as a character. Yeah, I think what's astounding about the Trump is that like he began as this like character who starred in shorts. And I think like and we'll maybe talk about this later on, because I think Chaplin at one point argued that like the comedy, at least the screen comedy, kind of almost like a quarter of the Woody Allen argument. The Woody Allen argument is that like no comedy needs to be longer than 90 minutes or 88 minutes. Chaplin was like two reels. That is the ideal <laughs> length of a screen comedy and anything else or anything more is excessive and unnecessary. And it's kind of amazing that you you look at. Chaplin, who began playing the tramp in those shorts and who began developing the character in those shorts. And they're, they work really well. Um, and we'll maybe mention some of those when we get later on as well. But like, they're very much, they are effective comedies and they work really well and they play really well even today, particularly with younger audiences um, because they're silent, they're slapstick, they're funny and Chaplin's a wonderful physical performer. And what's really interesting about the champ as a character is that you you then stretch them out to a feature length and... I know there are arguments, and you mentioned that kind of like Keaton, Lloyd, uh, Chaplin, Trinity, and the arguments that certain film people get into about the various differences between the three of them. And one of the big knocks against Chaplin, and we'll probably come back to it in discussing Modern Times in particular, is that Chaplin's approach often felt like knitting several shorts together and calling it a feature. Yeah. Um, But like, generally speaking, though, the Tramp made his leap from shorts 
to these extended features by doing that thing that you mentioned, by becoming this figure that is not only like funny to laugh at, but has genuine pathos, like generates empathy in an audience and like generates investment in an audience, um, which is remarkable. It's like, imagine Bugs Bunny starring in Gone with the Wind. And it's something kind of vaguely similar to that. Maybe not exactly that, maybe less racism and about half as long. But, you know, you get you get the same kind of thing. It's like, what if Bugs Bunny also starred in five of the greatest movies of all time, according to the IMDb's 250? It's right. almost unimaginable. Um, and I think that that's, that's a huge part of, like, Chaplin's appeal. And it's something that's remarkable about the Tramp um, as a character. I, all right, then. Before, I, oh, sorry. How, how, uh, sorry, actually, maybe we'll talk about it later on. Maybe we'll put a pin in that kind of um, criticism over, like, like the, the, you know, the narrative strength of it, right? Yeah. Versus, like, I think, I think it's 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 definitely got a lot going on um, thematically. But they, they, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested. We'll talk about it later on. But yeah, how how uh, you feel about that kind of idea that he he's not great at telling a story and that it is kind of like vignettes, maybe. Well, it, it, he has a lot in common <laughs> with Woody Allen. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, not not, does, not just having having like a movie, which is a series of vignettes, like like um, all you ever wants to know about Also possibly sex, being a terrible person. But we're afraid to yes. ask. Yes, that is what I'm referring to as well. <laughs> Darren. <laughs> Yeah, in um, retrospect, yeah. uh, maybe not the best film to pick if you earnestly do not want to talk about that subject. It's probably not. No, <laughs> um, like we're we're citing um, Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> so, like he he's 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 been removed from the um, from the IMDb two fifty kind of because um, uh, all of a sudden, kind of it was the seventies didn't um or it was, was no the longer 80s, a passable it excuse was the 90s. Yeah. Didn't, or the early 2000s or the early 2000s <laughs> didn't really pass as an excuse but may, may, um it's it appears that it was the 30s it's still <laughs> okay i guess i don't know yeah i mean I, I have looked at the 250 i've looked at the top 50 i've looked at the top 50 on the 250 and i can guarantee you the last two entries in the top 50 we will cover will be the pianist and the usual suspects oh wow okay those are the wow. last two that we will those we will leave those two until the end we should, uh, when it comes it, to covering <laughs> like maybe we shouldn't be flagging these things it's like <laughs> it's a kind of it's a sort of a thing where you have there's different kinds of guilty pleasures. There's things that are very schmaltzy and that you'd be embarrassed to enjoy. And then there are things that are made by the worst people ever um, mm. that you just can't help dancing to, say, for example. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry, um, bit of a tangent. But, um, okay, well, just just to kind of put that pin in what you said there, it is worth noting that, like, uh, Otis Ferguson, the film critic at The New Republic, generally regarded as one of the first proper serious American film critics noted that like the film could be divided into a collection of one or two real shorts. Um, right. He said, you know, the titles should be like the, the shop, the jailbird, the watchman and the singing waiter are the four titles that he suggested. Minimal spoilers there. I hope. <laughs> All right. Before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions just to get us started. So Dean, do you think that modern times belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? On the one hand, I don't feel nearly qualified enough to answer that question, but also if I heard someone else say no, I'd have words with them. So I guess <laughs> I guess I must think so. 
And and what what is it about the the movie that kind of makes it that? Is it just what you described earlier, or is it is it something about like its place in cinema history in particular? Is it just that it's a really good film? It's just a really good film. I mean, it is obviously like so important historically, and even just like in terms of the way it's it's a it. It doesn't lean too heavily on this, but it is kind of explicitly a farewell to silent cinema in some ways. Um, But honestly, no, it's just because I think like it's just one of the best films ever made. People are still trying to catch up with Chaplin like decades later in so many ways. Um, And Andrew, then, what about yourself? Do you think this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? The authorities are still catching up. (laughs) No, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I beg your pardon. We we did cover that in the circus, actually. That very literally happened. But anyway. I'll stop. No. Uh I'm not not actually out trying to tell people, like, you shouldn't enjoy Chaplin. Of course you should. He's a fantastic filmmaker. He's an icon of, 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 of cinema. And and this is and, an iconic movie, and this is probably one of his least problematic movies as well. I mean, like, it, still the scenes. But, <laughs> oh, it still is. Oh, it still is. But, um, but I, like, I, I I hope we won't just. I hope we won't spend too much time talking about that. I know it is me who keeps on bringing it up. <laughs> um, uh, but what's me call it? Um, no, it's 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 it it does belong to be on on on, on the two fifty. Uh, out of the Chaplin movies that we've covered so far, and I think this might only be the second. I think the other one was the Third. kid, right? We also covered the circus, which is inexplicably oh, one of our yes. most popular episodes. I have no idea how or why. We 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 covered the kid and the circus. Oh gosh, I might. Yeah. I I'm not sure if I'd put this ahead of the circus, but but it's definitely more. I feel like it's more kind of in the the kind of public consciousness of yes. who uh, Chaplin is and what his movies are. Um, well, I mean, so, it did take the circus, you know, close to 80 years to get 25,000 right. votes and end up He's on the 250. new entry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't particularly kind of big at the time either, was it? Or, sorry, no. actually, I, I guess we've discussed this all. Um, yeah. But it, 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 it wasn't, it, it, it didn't kind of... Um, um, I it think, was somewhat overshadowed by, right. you know, we mentioned kind of City Lights, we mentioned the Gold Rush, we mentioned the Kid. So I think so far, Modern Times is the one to beat. <laughs> like City Lights um, needs to really kind of um, come to play. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever we I love that you that. just dismissed the Gold. You dismissed the Gold Rush entirely. It's like, yeah, no, I'm not, not here, not here. Gold Rush. <laughs> well, uh, well, or well, the, the Great Dictator. That's the Great Dictator. Oh, it can sneak the, up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, um, and take that, the great dictator yeah. as well, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, for myself, yes. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is is, pers- is arguably the best or most important chaplain. I think maybe the great dictator also is an argument in that particular debate. Maybe I don't know if it's the most formalistly impressive one. Maybe City Lights has that going for it. Uh, but I do think that it is important for all the reasons we outlined. It being the last silent film. It being the culmination of Chaplin's journey with the Tramp. Because when he turns up again in um, The Great Dictator, he's playing a character who is similar to the Tramp in many ways. Uh, and also a character who is similar to Adolf Hitler. Just, <laughs> you know, those are two different characters. Um, but he's he's also like a character that is not the Tramp. He's an actual person. 
to a certain extent. So this is the end of the line for one of the most iconic characters um, in Western cinema. One of the most recognizable characters, as Andrew pointed out, a silhouette that you instantly recognize. Uh, also a superbly made film. Also a film that you can point to like any number of sequences or stills or images from it and go, that is from modern times. That is, you know, a lasting image of American cinema. Um, that is a, something that kind of like speaks to and lingers in the public consciousness. It's, it's still spoofed in things like, you know, when we get to recommendations, I'm going to recommend some highly unlikely, like great, 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 great grandchildren slash like 14th removed cousins <laughs> of modern times because its influence still continues to grow. We, so, yeah, I think that we might have obligatory references. We might indeed. As, <laughs> to as, these. as well as gratuitous references to yeah. things uh, that we always talk about. Yeah. <laughs> when we talk about like movies and cinema and <laughs> modern times. Exactly. Um, but I, I, do, I do think that, yeah, I think modern times is inexplicably one, not inexplicably, inarguably one of the most important movies ever made, like a huge part of Hollywood history and hugely influential. It's an incredible shadow. So yeah, I the short answer is yes, I do believe it belongs on the list. And Dean, you've already answered this. It is your fourth favorite film of all time. But like, is there anything else you kind of want to say to that? Like, it, like just you personally, like your memory of it, like what is it about it that really speaks to you? Um, I mean, on some level... It, it was it was so formative in just like becoming a, a proper film lover like like this is one of the things where I was like oh I get I get what production design is now and I'm in love with it uh, those the, the the factory scenes are so amazing but um honestly like I don't I don't tend to rank stuff so much anymore but I did do a this is a weird number 161 greatest films of all time as far as I know list at the end of last year and bang modern times on there no bother like <laughs> just. That's a much more manageable podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, dude, I think I've mentioned before, there are other podcasts, or there have been. I think we might may have the longest staying power. Um, <laughs> Just uh, through sheer stubbornness. Yeah, but there have been other um, podcasts. Uh, there, there could be one currently. I think there is one currently. But there have been other ones that have taken the approach of no guests, and we'll take a snapshot of the list <laughs> and, uh, um, at this particular point in time and just do that so that we don't have to do something insane like more than 250 episodes. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that's boring. And why would we want to do that? Exactly. Uh, they, and the, the thing about like production design, has that kind of informed how you feel about uh like how you favor particular directors or particular movies. Like, are are you a big Burton or a big um, kind of a uh, let's see, um, Gilliam head? Well, you are I a big am, Gilliam head. I'd yeah. say like a huge just to pick Gilliam a random head. name out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think even we'll probably talk about this more later. But in terms of that that uh, vignette stuff, I think the production design. Uh, my love for it has definitely made me extremely resentful of people who I who I think are overly focused on the narrative elements of cinema. Right. Um, we'll probably talk about that more later, but definitely like uh, I get so annoyed when people just overly focus on 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 the story of a, of a film, and I'm like, have you looked at it though? Like, have you actually looked at it? It's so <laughs> good. Like, there's so many films with terrible stories, but I would sit down and watch them on a loop because they're just so gorgeous. Like, but but Dean, they have plot holes. They can't be good <laughs> objectively. 
A good movie can't have plot holes, do you? I feel like you can probably do both. I think like Wes Anderson <laughs> is a good guy at, you know, telling a story. Um and and also like just messing about. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like like that that he cares a lot about how this looks or how um oh whoopsie daisies. Have I been lost? My internet connection no, is unstable. Okay, you're 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 back now. Oh, my favorite, sorry. My favorite bit of trivia about Wes Anderson is that apparently he sat down and he said to one of his friends or a film critic who was like interviewing him, uh, and was apparently he's been continuously disappointed to this. Every single one of his movies to this point has included a reference to heat, and nobody has picked up on them. <laughs> <laughs> really. Uh, Yep, apparently he's a big heat. Like, he was apparently quite miffed that everybody got Nolan doing Dark Knight as a heat reference, but nobody's picked up on, like, the hidden heat reference inside the Fantastic Mr. Fox. And do they <laughs> exist? I mean, I can definitely see the Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'm trying to... Like, that. that is a podcast of itself. Watching every Wes Anderson movie, not Googling <laughs> what the references are, and then... Uh, connecting it back to yeah, heat maybe placing money <laughs> like i think it's this yeah <laughs> gambling makes everything more exciting um yeah but, yeah visit gambleaware.ie <laughs> um, our but, our our sponsors are now um uh kevin hart's poker partypoker.com um, and, and andrew would it be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favorite movies um, would it be on my top 250 movies of all time, in my own opinion, on my own list? I don't know. I don't know if it would. I think it was, it was, it was funny. The, 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 it, it, the, like, as, as Dean said, it definitely has the, the kind of, the, the pathos, but I feel, I, f- I mean, it is great. It, there there is no it it's it's um it's indisputable kind of indis indisputably great but i don't know if if i think the narrative stuff kind of maybe like uh prevents me from from really enjoying it as much as i could and while i enjoyed the the thematic kind of um arguments it felt like it was kind of making um i think if you if you thread that theme through a a story that you can kind of get personally kind of involved with and care about um it would maybe hit stronger or something but it's fantastic i'm just not sure if i'd put it on my top 250 i think so far if i if if one of the requirements were that I needed to put a Chaplin movie in, and why not require that? Then yes, I would put it on the list. But I haven't seen all Chaplin movies. I think I've seen City Lights. I think I saw it as a child. Yeah, I have strong memories of City Lights, even though I don't remember when I actually saw it, which What's is a the... very weird experience to have with a movie. What's the movie where somebody says it smells like rain? Is that a Chaplin movie? Not off the top of my head. Will you go to the fact machine and check? Is it worth going to the fact machine? Well, we're, do- we're going now. We're going now <laughs> to the fact machine. Um, smells like rain, Chaplin. 
Yeah, I got nothing. Um, really? Yep, yeah, no, I, I literally typed Chaplin, it smells like rain. It did suggest Chaplin, it smells like teen spirit. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> cotton. No. No. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. I must have seen another silent movie. And just <laughs> my mind told me that, like, it must be um, a, a Chaplin movie. Because you talk amongst yourself. <laughs> while, while I get lost in a in a rabbit hole looking <laughs> looking for this I'm going to take I'm going to take a, a a punt here I'm going to say that we might be back from the fact machine <laughs> I think um, we are back from we the might machine. in fact be some, back from the some fact of, some of us are still stuck in the time in the in the fact machine and you need to you now uh, go back to in <laughs> in incept back into <laughs> out of the or into the fact machine I'm not sure how it works um, but um I couldn't find any reference to It Smells Like Rain Inside a Chaplin movie. I think you might be referring to Buster Keaton in, uh, sorry, it's, sorry, is it Harold Lloyd or Buster Keaton uh, in Speedy? Um, it is possible. It's Harry Lloyd in Speed, in Swift, uh, sorry, as, as Harold Speedy Swift in Speedy uh, says it smells like rain. This is what the final third of our Wes Anderson podcast would be like. <laughs> there would be a lot of Googling to try and figure out which of us are right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the grand finale, you're just tallying up the score. Yeah. <laughs> and then you up the ante. Us like, boys fought in the Civil War and our old password was, it smells like rain. If you get in trouble, pass the word, it smells like rain. Dead will blow his bugle and we'll all be there. Oh, excellent. So it was a Buster Keaton movie. Um, I was no, wrong. It, it wasn't a Harold Lloyd. Sa- Harry Harold Lloyd. Oh, okay. Yes. In so, very much in keeping with the two fifties hipster credentials, it is a Harry Lloyd movie. So I've always been a Harry Lloyd fan. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I just. Love that you're... I didn't just do it because it's, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right then, and for myself, probably. Um, I think this might skirt in somewhere down the bottom. I think I probably have more affection for the openly saccharine uh, Chaplin movies as opposed to the bittersweet ones. So ironically, I think I probably actually really love The Circus. Uh, I do really love City Lights. This one might sneak in, though, just because I love it, as Dean says, it's visual so much. I love what it's doing thematically. I love its set pieces, and it just really moves me. And also, I really like Chaplin because I'm a sap. So maybe is the answer to that. (laughs) Um, All right, then. And then final question. So if our listeners have not seen um modern times dean would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device yeah but not for spoiler reasons i just think watching this is one of the best ways you can spend your brief time on earth and you should get it you should you should take the opportunity while you can <laughs> that, that's very true we, we we to be fair that is generally what the question's asking it's not like no 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 do you want do you not want to be spoiled it's like no is this worth your time do you okay. want to listen to us talk about it before you watch it <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and Andrew, what about yourself? Um, yes, I would. I would. You can you can watch it on Google, probably other ways. I think you said Darren that it's available on Criterion. It's also it um, I think free on um, on YouTube, possibly. Um, I think there are some issues with the copyright of the soundtrack. There are some which issues. Is obviously very important. So I watched the kind of artificial eye um, version with a uh, soundtrack that was very good. And um, you can rent it or you can buy it. 
So um, I I'd, 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 I rented it. Um, and it's up to our listeners whether they buy it, rent it, or watch it for free with no soundtrack. <laughs> um, <laughs> with, with, with Portuguese subtitles <laughs> on YouTube. See, see which you prefer. With ads in the middle, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, probably. Yeah, probably. I, I did try to watch um, It Happened One Night on YouTube. And um, I'm glad that I didn't persist with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, then. And, and for myself, yes, I, it absolutely is. I think this is a wonderful, magical film. And it's only 87 minutes long, so it's a breeze as well. Um, so I would wholeheartedly recommend it. And I mean, look, if you don't like one part of it, you probably like the other three because it's basically all short stuff together. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you're getting real value for money is my yeah, argument yeah, here. Yeah. But It's like, why are you focusing so much on that part of the movie? There's, three, there's four parts in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, why is the guy selling Modern Times Mario? <laughs> Chris Pratt's Mario. And with that in mind, then, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. A spoiler zone. Um, so, so Dean, what is Modern Times about for you? Modern Times, I mean, obviously when Chaplin was making it, he was inspired by the conditions of the Depression that had just just wrapped up by the time he, he finished, he finished, he wrapped on this. Um, the precariousness of work and the... Uh, what it feels like to live in a world where you're you're constantly on, you know, you have to work because if you don't work, you starve. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, as, as happens with the tramp in this in this film, it's a world where you're almost better off in prison because at least you're getting three square meals a day. Now, those meals may have maggots in them, but you're getting three meals a day. Um, maggots are full of protein. <laughs> and, and there are healthy helpings of cocaine as well. Oh yes. Uh, so much cocaine. Have you tried cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No <laughs> not not because I have. I just don't want anyone to think I'm not cool enough to try. <laughs> but is this movie an endorsement of cocaine? <laughs> that is I feel like we wandered off a tangent. I do beg We'll come back to that. I promise we'll come back to that, Andrew. But Dean, sorry, we, we got off, off a, on a tangent there. You were talking about like, the depression. You were talking about prison, three hots and a cot, and the idea of kind of institutionalization, perhaps, in the movie. Mm, 13th Amendment. Kind of like, whatever else this film is, it is a film about a guy who has a nervous breakdown from being overworked in a factory. And, like, I, I think, like, the Amazon warehouse stuff probably wasn't yeah. as, as visible when I first watched it. But watching it this time, I was like, Jesus Christ. They need like, to work hard. That man wants to go to Mars. <laughs> I mean, he wants like, to get my, jacked. My my watch I, like his, watching modern. His sorry. divorce isn't going to pay for itself. <laughs> like <laughs> if they die, they die. It's like Ivan Drago says. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, um, okay, gratuitous Rocky Four reference apparently, but the. <laughs> The thing that there we go. There's another distant cousin of guys, apparently. But what I was going to say, look, the thing, that, the point that Dean made there about the Amazon warehouse stuff. What I found really striking is that, like, watching it this time 
in like 2022, which is not the first time I have watched the movie and certainly not the first time I've watched this section of the movie. I was watching it and I was going, man, this dystopia that Charlie Chaplin imagines himself trapped in as an extension of the dehumanizing forces of industrialization actually seems better than life on the Amazon production line because at least he gets to go to the bathroom. Sure, there's a camera watching him and there's a guy who'll pop up on screen and tell him to, hey, he doesn't have time to wash his hands and punch his time card, but he doesn't have to pee in a bottle while working on the like assembly line there. And like that was something that was really we, bleak. We attempted to reach Amazon for comment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, like, he has a nervous breakdown from working, but he gets healthcare, like, immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. It's like, like that's that's the really depressing thing, is that, like, somehow this is this dystopian vision of, like, what labor looks like somehow feels like the most upbeat reading of the New York Times or the Atlantic or, you know, whatever <laughs> version of a counter of what it's like to actually work in one of these environments is like. Hey, Alexa, would, would you care to comment on <laughs> <laughs> And it didn't. Um, so they, that's because I have a Google Home, Andrew. Yeah, right? it's 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 silence speaks volumes. Um, I, I like this. We're turning into a true crime podcast. <laughs> like this was Google's chance to 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 rat out um, Amazon, and um, I think Google is afraid that it knows too much. Um, yeah. But but sorry, Dean. I, we kind of we got off on a tangent there. But yeah, that is that is something that is kind of striking to to watch now and to see that presentation of the assembly line. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and obviously, it's it's one of the funniest things ever committed to film, as far as I'm concerned. The 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 first time it ratchets up the speed, you're like, this is a ridiculous pace that no human could ever endure. And then they just ratchet it up again, and and he's just when he st- gets a nervous twitch because he can't just stop bolting things and he starts running around bolting the buttons on women's clothes and stuff. And it's just... Like, on the one... Like I was saying, like, on the one hand, this is like a man having a nervous breakdown and it's honestly kind of disturbing, but also it's just so goddamn funny. I mean, well, that, that's the thing about modern times is it seems to suggest, you know, at the risk of, like, being a cliche um, or, like, endorsing Todd Phillips' Joker or whatever, but the idea that the only sane response to a world this inhuman is to basically go insane, is to, like, reject any humanity within your, yourself. I not mean, ultimately. You mentioned... No, no, Ulti- no. no, no ultimately, like... the, the, the lesson appears to be to just kind of, like, smile. You know, turn that from your heart is breaking. Down. I, I remember but, but working. The movie working... is optimistic in that, like, it happens four times. He ends up either institutionalized or going insane or yeah. going to prison, like four or five times over the course of this movie. And like the the movie's only response is, "Yeah, but what if you smile? What if you smile? Exactly. We'll they, 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 it, it, it's kind of it, it's a naive sort of a way to 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 um, sign off, I guess. And it's a fantastic tune, by the way. Um, and recorded in 1954 for the one of the re-releases of the movie, and it's yeah. it's being covered by so many people. But they, they they this point about kind of smile. Um, I remember I I worked in a hotel in like in various hotels for like a little less than ten years. Really, like far too long. <laughs> and I remember one day coming in to work. Um, 
getting getting dressed, putting on my uniform and I'm walking into like the, the restaurant or the lounge, wherever it was. And one of my colleagues said, oh, gosh, you're in a great mood. I said, no, this is my smile. This is my uniform. This is what I wear when I'm at work. It is a it is a front, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, I um maybe I've had a terrible day. You'll never know, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's it's so kind of it, it feels kind of true. This 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 kind of um kind of layer of professionalism that we kind of like put on ourselves when we're when we're working, in spite of the um emotions and the and the the nervous breakdown that that it can that it, that that it can and does cause this is right. like a movie about it, it as 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 dean says it's about it's about burnout you know it's about it's about um a blue collar burnout um yeah it's um I was just going to say, that, like before the internet got its hands on it and ruined it, that's exactly what the term emotional labor meant. The the fake emotions you have to put on while you're at work, the smiling to look pleasing to customers and also honestly to not, to basically just to make your, because your boss will get pissed off if you start making him feel bad about how he's treating you. So you have to always have the, the happy front on and... Absolutely. No, I, I, I used to do like uh, door-to-door sales and I loved it, but my face... In the first few months, my face started hurting from smiling too much. Um, so I just started to smile less. And I, I think I came across like a bit more natural. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and that. But like, it's, it's, it's very true. And I think that it's, it's, it is labor. It, and it, it is difficult. And I think there's something actually quite clever in that with the tramp. Because the tramp is this kind of vaudeville character who is always performing for other people again this this kind of chaplain character the idea that chaplain has talked about how he can't remember a time when he wasn't performing on stage right and here in modern times like and again i think this is something maybe to talk about broader kind of like something we'll come back to later like generally speaking in chaplain's films that performance is is typically romantic in nature it's the you know the famous bread rolls dancing scene in the gold rush for example or the the impressing a beautiful girl by putting on a show or making somebody look like an idiot that sort of thing here what i find in really interesting is that that performance is like performance of being a functional member of society um, it's as Dean mentioned, the nervous tick where he becomes nothing but the bolt tightener. So that even when he like chases a woman out of the office, he's still trying to tighten bolts on like fire hydrants outside, for example. Uh, but it's also in things like the fact that, and again, this is something I find really interesting about this is I would argue, and we'll maybe we'll talk about Paulette Goddard kind of later on, and we'll talk about Chaplin's relationship with her later on as well. But the gamine here is perhaps the least romantic of Chaplin's female leads. I think there is romance there, mm. but I think it's the least overtly romantic, the least sexualized. Um, Do you know what is very overt? Is how much of a, like a minor and a juvenile and like <laughs> any any particular way <laughs> that, they, that, that they want to kind of get that across. They couldn't have been more clear. With, and it's interesting that it's the least romantic kind of um, Chaplin movie because it, it's it's... <laughs> anyway sorry that's going <laughs> we, that's going in a whole we, other direction i beg your pardon we, we will and we will come back we we can come back to that if andrew wants and andrew seems to want to so we no, can no, thank no, you no. Andrew. It's, <laughs> it's like the i, I may, maybe people love that sort of chat 
but it, it I, I can imagine like like it's it's kind of um yeah anyway sorry but m- the point i was going to make is that like there is less romance between the tramp and the gamine they actually seem like equals and again we'll talk about goddard and we'll talk about champion's relationship to goddard and how that informed it but it does mean that things like the performance of domesticity that happened in the movie, for example, where he imagines the two of them living together. Mm. He imagines their idyllic life. And then later on, you get to see that like replayed in the little shack where they're living together that is falling apart. And they're again, they're pantomiming kind of a bourgeois middle class existence. But as like working class people who literally cannot afford to buy a house, you know, whose house is falling apart, it's barely like worth being called a house. But they're going through the motions of it. They're pretending that they can survive. They're pretending that this is a tenable living situation. They're faking it until they make it kind of thing, basically, which I find really interesting. I think plays into that kind of economics theme that runs through it, because it's not just about, you know, mechanization, industrialization, the idea that these machines dehumanize us by dehumanize us by literally taking our jobs and making us work on conveyor belt lines. But it's also like the idea that industrialist modern society strips away our individuality so that we just end up as cogs in the machine trying to recreate what we've seen machines do and what we we think a middle-class existence looks like things like the the feeding machine at the start right the which is the sequence machine. where he's where can, we'll come can back I, to can i can i okay i mean we we have to talk about the feeding machine we will talk about the can, feeding machine but i just i want to make a point very quickly which is like the feeding machine at the at the start is mirrored with the sequence at the end where the worker gets stuck in the machine and Chaplin literally feeds him. Chaplin becomes an organic <laughs> feeding machine. Um, so you have this like thing, the journey where like he becomes he's the superior uh, feeding machine. He is <laughs> he is the 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 Bob Morton um, to <laughs> the Ed Two Hundred Nine. His 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 stuck in the machine feeding is the Bob Morton. To the billows feeding machines, Dick Jones, uh, obligatory uh, Robocop reference. We we got there. It is um, the but... Ed Two O Nine scene. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 what what you were saying about them, like like you know, role playing as um uh smug suburban uh, couple is very is is very like um like Five Hundred Days of Summer. Although like obviously it's not as good a movie as either of the the two that we just spoke about but um yeah it definitely definitely has those grandchildren and that 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 idea of us becoming becoming machines while aspiring to be humans and um humanity um getting like more and more um unattainable because the things that we associate with kind of you know uh, with value is 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 kind of you know having having this big house and having all of this kind of um having these... a self-milking cow exactly yeah oh so yeah, that's yeah. that's such an amazing side gag him, him moving so the cup good. instead of re-aiming the cow <laughs> <laughs> But um, so, Dean, in terms of like that performance stuff, is there anything you kind of want to add there in terms of like that that kind of dynamic that exists or that kind of aspect? Because you did mention this being a movie that really you engaged with as a commentary on like labor and humanity and, and industrialization and mechanization. Yeah, I think um, Chaplin is, is a filmmaker I really think about as um, 
Someone who's very good at getting at both the material and the spiritual kind of bereftness of life under capitalism about how not only do, do, are you living in a shack, but like, you know, like you're kind of pantomiming this this life that you probably should have in a in a better world. And I think there's something interesting in this, in, in you know, the kind of like the smile ending that like when they first see that suburban couple right before they do the the daydream sequence with the self-milking cow, that initially they're actually mocking that suburban yeah. couple. There's there, there's this real thing of like laughing and smiling through the pain. Look at these saps. And, um, and I think one of the th- reasons that the, the, the ending, uh, as potentially pat as it might seem, uh, really, really gets me is that, 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 it's not it's not letting you forget the pain even if it's saying you, all you can do is is kind of smile and laugh through it and just keep going like the pain is is always there throughout the film because they don't get that home they don't settle they they they're forced to kind of wander and again the image of the champ with his bindle is something that kind of resonates in the great depression one of the things i do find interesting about this and this is something that's very boring 250 nonsense so andrew feel free to zone out um but like we we look at the kind of like the list and its rankings and we look at trends over time and generally speaking movies on the list trend downwards over time movies will eventually drop out and be replaced by new movies allowing this podcast to continue indefinitely um but until what's interesting until do have we have we a contingency plan for like if, when when, <laughs> when we finish when one of us die <laughs> I, I have a billows eating Darren, machine here Darren will be like just let me finish please please, <laughs> please don't interrupt me and I'm like hold on I just have a tangent and then Darren was like ah, ah, ah. don't worry I, I'm pretty sure the next dot com bubble will happen before before that and then you won't have to worry about IMDB anymore that's right <laughs> that's a very fair well we, we 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 feel that we can probably upload kind of our all of the digital consciousness that we yeah, and just have it auto generate. It'll it'll create an artificial intelligence that will that will represent the metaverse like, is going to be great for this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> that's so. that's the future. Um, but like what now I, I think video. is interesting <laughs> <laughs> in AR. What, what I think is interesting about modern times on the two fifty is that it followed that pattern. Like so, it came in relatively high. It's one of the one hundred percenters. It's been there since the list first appeared in 1996 um but it's generally it was trending down up until october 2009 and then all of a sudden in october 2009 it changes direction and it climbs dramatically up to number 40 reaching a high of 36 and that growth spurt basically happens between october 2009 and may 2014 and I find it interesting that that would seem to suggest the movie found a new resonance, coincidentally, um, <laughs> in like the aftermath of 2008. Like I find that like, this is a movie that's still timely and still resonant and still has things to say about the world. And I mean, you you have like articles like in places like CNN written in 2010 by Julian E. Zelizer, you know, arguing that, you know, the movie's themes are more resonant to Americans now than they were when it was made. You know, outside of the upper-income Americans enjoying the fruits of a rebounding stock market, most are struggling to survive with an unemployment rate hovering at 
5%, and an underemployment rate, which includes the unemployed and those working part-time, that is over 19%. People are fearful about keeping their jobs if they have one, obtaining jobs if they don't, and being able to pay for their family's needs, saving for retirement, facing local and state government cutbacks in essential services such as school programs. And it's kind of interesting that... It was a dark time. 2009 <laughs> to 2014. Thankfully, everything is uh, <laughs> hunky dory right now. Yeah, exactly. We've we've gotten out of that maelstrom. Thank goodness we've recovered that. Because I mean, like that's the thing is that like <laughs> the interesting thing when when Chaplin made Modern Times in 1936. He was reacting to movies like Metropolis in, in the 20s. And those were movies about how dark the future was going to be, how terrible the future was going to be. And Modern Times is like, no, the, the present, that's when this stuff is happening. And now you look 80 years down the line and this stuff is still frighteningly <laughs> contemporary, which it's, is... <laughs> it, 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 1936 was a year of great optimism. <laughs> <laughs> just generally yeah, speaking. Like, I think things are going to be great from here on in. Yeah. Um, um, things are only going to get better. Yeah. Um, Chaplin is like, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I've got substance for at least one more movie um, that will make the list. And then a bunch of other movies that nobody will really pay any attention to. Um, but I, I do think that there is something interesting in, say, Jacob Leyland's argument that Modern Times is the rare movie that actually understands the Great Depression because it's, and again, this is one of the things where we've talked about this in the podcast before we talk about Chaplin. Chaplin's films frequently come back to the image of eating and consumption. He's he's a quintessential 250 like filmmaker in that his movies are all about food and the desire to eat food and the fact that as a child, he never had enough food. And so yearning for food um, and that kind of basic hunger is a driving force of his movies and arguably one of the reasons why his movies resonated as they did with audiences at the time that they did. And what's interesting, Leyland makes a very interesting point and Andrew was right to single this out. We need to come back and we need to talk about the Billows feeding machine because what it does is it takes the quintessential Chaplin idea of like food and consumption as something that is a pleasure and a luxury and a desire and turns it into something that is grotesque and monstrous and horrifying and this is something where I'm ready to defer entirely to Andrew, who I know is much stronger on economics than I am, and Dean, who is much better about Chaplin than I am and much stronger on this movie than I am. But I, one of the observations that I read from Jacob Leyland writing in the Paris Review was that one of the arguments that has been made about the Great Depression is that we tend to think of them as, as, an, as a food shortage or a famine. We tend to treat the Great Depression, you know, with, you know, Dust Bowl photographs. That's it. Dust Bowl photographs and and kind of like shots of people waiting in line for food and rail riding hobos kind of looking for work. We tend to treat it as a food shortage or a famine. And what, what it is is actually something more complicated because when the stock market crashed in 1929, it didn't take like the raw materials of production or the, the manufacturing materials that enabled American industry through the Roaring Twenties. It didn't take the workers away. Instead, it took their jobs and it took everybody's money away. So that industry, which still had the raw materials, which still had the property um, and which you know just couldn't pay the labor found itself without anyone to buy what it was producing. And like notably among the economic measures taken during the depression to help ease the suffering 
were subsidies to reduce supply. Farmers being paid not to grow crops. In fact, sometimes being paid to destroy them with the hope of kind of boosting demand and getting Americans to buy again. You know, notably the response to the Great Depression wasn't to create like a recognizable welfare state um, like in Europe after the Second World War. It was instead to encourage consumption. And so you have this idea, Leyland says, this very astute observation about like what that modern times makes with, you know, the billows feeding machine and with this fantasy of suburban living and even the fact that like Chaplin and the Gamain end up working in a shop together. You have this idea that it's about consumption rather than production becomes the order of the day in the 1930s. Americans had to become a nation of consumers rather than producers. You have to learn to buy more stuff than you make, and that kind of hasn't stopped. And then, you know, so you have this idea that, you know, this is the shift in the individual's economic function represented in modern times, that the feeding machine is the most obvious one. You know, on his supervisor's orders, although clocked out for lunch, he becomes like the product that every American factory is trying to assemble, a perfect consumer, an open mouth, captive to the aggressive new machinery that American industry has designed to feed his appetites. He's passive while the marketplace is active and evolving and revolving. As metaphors for technology of capitalism go, the feeding machine is a pretty transparent one. To live in modern times, and by extension in modern times, means to train yourself to consume as quickly, efficiently, and widely as possible. Is there anything to be said for that? Yeah, I definitely agree. There, there's a kind of a resentment at the moment. Like, I guess we... Like, I'm not an expert, but there, there is a... Um, a movement in America at the moment, kind of a, a, a populist movement that is about kind of like um, uh, making America great again. And part of that is bringing industry back. Um, and there's a kind of a narrative that um, China has stolen kind of jobs that used to be American. Um, and there is some kind of truth to that. But part of the reality of it as well is that America moved from being a, 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 as you say, from being a, a, a producers to being consumers, and that that was intentional, and that part of it is, is it, and that it's bipartisan as well. That it was kind of like like um, you can think of kind of um, I don't know how fair it is to kind of talk about like uh, Ralph Nader and Ted Kennedy and their the kind of like pro consumer um, stuff that they did in like the seventies and eighties. But it's very much kind of like a a a, a shifting um, towards um, being being consumers, and um, basically kind of did in, in, at, at any cost, I guess, um, to your soul or to kind of the your society, um, I guess. But um, I don't know how prescient this movie is though in respect of that that's probably it may maybe maybe it's um maybe it's giving reading the movie too much, too into much it? credit or, or or reading too much into it but it, it 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 definitely goes to what dean um said earlier which is kind of how um timelessly relevant um this movie is because it speaks to so much that has happened um since i guess um, I don't know if, if 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 that's kind of if uh, if what I'm saying is kind of facile or whatever, but but um, 
no, I'd, 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 I'd agree up to a point, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily an unfair way to look at it, but I wouldn't say it would be the primary way I would look at it. I would look at it as simply, like, just basic alienation from the one of the most simple elemental parts of being a human, eating something so you stay alive, and now, like... You're, do, you're you're literally doing it for your boss so you don't have to go on lunch and and there's something really interesting in what you're saying about like food and chaplain films that that it uh, uh, literally on the plate that is one of the best meals the tramp has ever yeah. been given in any movie and but it's it's being sh- thrown into his face and like even it's so it's so obviously like viscerally uncomfortable for him even before the machine starts malfunctioning and then of course it's just tipping the soup on him and shooting bolts into his face and all this and just like it's almost uh like it starts off just very subtly alienating and then you know Chaplin <laughs> comes in with his, his his gag writing magic it just escalates and it's just like horrible like actual torture of, of of not even just like consuming for the benefit of of the ruling class but literally like remaining alive for the benefit of the ruling class and 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 eating just to be a worker not to be a not to be a person it's 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 one of the most disturbing funny things uh, i've seen in a movie just like so really uncomfortable but also i just i just can't stop laughing it's it's so good um we should note as well, just before we move off the kind of like the economic reading of it and the commentary on, on America in the 1930s and capitalism and the exploitation of labor, it is worth noting that like at the time of the film's release, there was some minor controversy. Well, first of all, the irony of Chaplin uh, in this movie being arrested after being accused of being a communist, uh, given oh. what would happen to Chaplin, uh, you know, less than two decades later. Uh, we talk about the movie being ahead of its time. I do quite like that aspect of it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's around the time of the kind of Spanish um, Civil War and the the strikers, one of them has like a... I realise it's California, so it's uh, close to Spanish Mexico, but they have have the, the Libertad um, kind of the... the um, so may, may, maybe maybe it's just that the, that the uh, strikers are... Um, from Central or South America, or maybe it's that they're making some reference to um, solidarity with the with the uh, with the Spanish um, uh, Republicans. Yes, <laughs> Republicans. But the f- the film did generate some controversy because there were reports that Boris uh, Shumatsky, and I apologize if I mangled that name, who was the head of the Soviet film industry, had previewed the film when he visited Chaplin in the United States and had praised the film for its ideological acumen. Um, Shumatsky wrote a review of the film in Pravda before the film was released in the US, and the radical press in America, especially the Daily Worker, quoted extensively from this review, claiming that modern times supported a critique of the capitalist system from a radical perspective. Of course, the mainstream press, such as the New York Times, picked up on the story, and Chaplin and United Artists went to pains to disassociate themselves from all these radical political readings and from all things Soviet, which I find kind of interesting as well. Um, that like this was a movie that Soviet Russia was like, yes, this is American film. This is good American film. Sorry, I shouldn't do that. This is a good American film. I shouldn't do the fake accent. Um, <laughs> thing. That's very bad taste. Apologies. This uh, is a good American film. In yeah, in in um, 
in Soviet Russia machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah Kosmer, apologies. But sorry, in Soviet sorry, Russia Dean. machine uses you. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but sorry, Dean, did I, did I cut you off there? Uh, no, I was uh, I was just thinking. Um, I, like it's all it's almost like doubly ironic because I mean, first of all, I just want to say the scene where he picks up the flag and is just like, hey, hey, you dropped your flag and the, the strikers <laughs> just appear behind him. When I watched the film, that was like the biggest belly laugh the whole film got for me. Just just perfect gag. But there's something really, really funny about um, like like Chaplin was a communist um, and, and this film uh, was certainly the, the one that, that, that most expressed his, his values in that regard. Which just makes it re- even funnier that the film that ultimately destroyed his career in America was the one where he was like Hitler's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, it, it, I think it was too late. It was kind of like um, you know there 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 is a point at which it's okay to be anti-fascist in America, <laughs> and, and 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 then kind of like there you can be too early or too late. You can be so too like early or too late. Or it's like, prematurely anti-fascist. Why don't like you like fascists? Those... Are you a commie? <laughs> <laughs> like prematurely anti-fascist is one of those horrifying phrases of the Yuak era, era, but apparently it's it's something that existed which is terrifying yeah. as well. It's like trying trying to tell the difference between like just a a an FDR kind of democrat and a fellow traveler. Is, um yeah is it, there there is it, it it's it's kind of Venn diagrams that's um, uh, that, overlap that significantly yeah yeah exactly um well I mean like and it's kind of funny you should mention the the Nazism which is a great segue it's funny you should mention the Nazism <laughs> but, um but like it it is kind of interesting in the context of this movie because obviously this movie was banned in Germany uh because Geibel Goebbels thought it would like advocated communism and in fact like when it was released it was there was a, a lawsuit around its alleged similarities to a rene claire film and news la liberté which is liberty for us um now it, claire was a big fan of chaplin and was apparently horrified that the production company were suing him but the german film company tobis film which was hungry for cash and which owned the rights to a new la liberté sued chaplin on the film's release and then they sued him again after World War II, with Chaplin honestly apparently arguing that it was because of his anti-Nazi sentiments. So I do find that kind of interesting as well. He was literally being sued by a German film company, possibly for being prematurely anti-capitalist, which is interesting. That is a good argument <laughs> from Chaplin. It's like it's because I don't like it's because I don't look like Nazis. Look at yeah. them; they're German. <laughs> <laughs> remember what they just did yeah. um, Chaplin did have to end up settling out of court on that second lawsuit one has to admit so maybe not the maybe not the robust <laughs> legal argument that he dunk. thought it was yeah. <laughs> yeah, like... maybe just not the best environment to be to to, 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 to be defending your communist film in court also <laughs> just immediately after World War II um, alright then uh, th- one thing we kind of mentioned we want to come back to, and I guess this is something for, because I think I get the sense this is the big Andrew and Dean let them fight moment. The observation that we made, this kind of observation uh, that was made by that film critic for The New Republic uh, by Otis, um, is that basically this is four films 
um, as one. This is not a single film, but is in fact four films. That's Otis Ferguson. It is The Shop, The Jailbird, The Watchman, and The Singing Waiter. And so, Andrew or Dean, is that fair to say? And is that a criticism of the movie? So, whoever wants to jump in on that. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily unfair as just like a, a neutral description of, of how the movie is structured. But the, I find the idea of it being uh, something cr- that, that that should be regarded as as diminishing the film very strange because even like before film, like the, the episodic journey through a bunch of different scenarios is just like a classic part of literature, like literally the odyssey up to Gulliver's tra- travels, like whatever you want. Like it's... And and film since like this is a film nobody has ever heard of, but I'm gonna mention it just because I love it. Is uh, Izzy gets the f- across town? Is this film from 2017? Starring- What's her name? It's it's your one from uh, Mackenzie Davis, is it? If I'm yeah, and and she's just she's trying to get the f- across town, and she just keeps running into these people and stopping and having these little exchanges or fights or conversations with them, and you could just as easily say. Oh, you could divide that up into a bunch of different films about Mackenzie Davis interacting with weird people in Los Angeles, but it's still she's in all the the scenes. Like, like <laughs> it, it's just a narrative structure, and and I think you know I was saying earlier that I find um, an excessive focus on on the narrative elements of cinema a bit off-putting at times. I don't I don't mean to be like anyone who gives a <laughs> about story is, is a simpleton or anything, but. <laughs> It does. It can. It definitely can come across kind of dorky, and I, I, I feel like since 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 I've kind of started noticing these things in movies, I will like it can kind of enhance my enjoyment of some movies, but also kind of discount my enjoyment of others, or kind of like if I'm reading a script or something, I want it to kind of. You know, to, uh, to play this very kind of like prescribed sort of formula. Like, you know, tell tell any kind of story you want, but you must tell it in this particular way. And the, the, I don't have a problem with, with something having a kind of a, like a four-act structure. But I don't know if it's a narrative structure, you know, that, 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 that it, that it um, I guess I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that the, um, I, 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 I think, I think that it doesn't give. I think, I think have, having a kind of a um, a sort of like a logical narrative structure, where you know where where I mean part of the problem is that I guess people know who the tramp is, so you don't need to kind of set that up really. The, the 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 movie kind of starts out straight away like just strapping you in and like he's already kind of you know doing things and doesn't... giving him a backstory or explaining him would somehow diminish him perhaps as well he's going exactly. like Herman now it does establish be... stuff for the character if you don't know that like you know he's a good guy for example <laughs> which is like an important thing to do i guess the, the you know it's the the um well it depends how you feel about things because him, him, um, like having all the cocaine, and then helping the police to um, helping the stop prison the jailbreak. guards, um, stop the jailbreak, and and foiling a jailbreak, like um, for a certain sort of person, that makes him a hero. <laughs> but, um, but 
for that is definitely the most evil thing he does in the film yeah yeah exactly. stopping the jailbreak um i don't think he did it deliberately though i don't think he did anything deliberately in that no scene. <laughs> he, he, yeah i feel like even like like when when um when he meets those people later on in the movie well he doesn't trying to rob the department but if, if 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 he did he would oh. just say like oh like we were prisoners together and i was on a lot of cocaine <laughs> it was a very different time yeah yeah uh, you met me at a very strange time um, in my life sorry i actually hadn't uh really clocked this before i before this watch but this is he gets like inebriated against his will twice in this film first he he sprinkles cocaine all over his prison food and now he's working the department store later he gets like half a barrel of rum shot into his face and it's that theme of consumption he's going to consume whether he wants to or not like there's no choice you will ingest these things <laughs> you will have a good fun will commence they live <laughs> there's something um very funny about um the fact that he has to call the the cocaine nose powder when I'm pretty sure cocaine was literally still legal in the United States. I'm pretty sure you could just pick that up in a pharmacy at the time. <laughs> so that he has to call it nose powder with big dramatic quotation marks of the intertitles is, is kind of funny. I, 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 like, literally, I think maybe Coca-Cola might have only gotten rid of the cocaine like a few years before that film came out. It's just that it's it's just that it's contraband. Like any, mm. Anything that you can't purchase at the commissary, <laughs> um, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. you're not allowed to have. They so. should have changed it. They should have just called it nose candy instead of nose powder. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. um, well, I mean, it's like oh, they they're 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 arguing with their suppliers at the moment. Like the commissary is is like, uh, guys, we don't have any cocaine. Um, we um, the stuff that we got we didn't like, so we sent it back. But we are getting more cocaine. Don't worry. Uh, please don't resort to the black market. Um, please, please enjoy this complimentary heroin lozenge until yeah. the, the normal service resumes. But this is kind of interesting because again, this gets at the whole shifting landscape of Hollywood. And again, this is one of the things where I wonder if this is one of the reasons why modern times is less romantic or sexual than Chaplin's other movies is because this is famously the first one that would have been subject to the production code, which we talked about last year, which was last week. Uh, we also talked about it last year because we always talk about it. But we, uh, <laughs> but it, it came into effect in uh, 1934, in July 1934. So this would have been the first time Chaplin was subject to it. And in fact, actually, he was subject to it. He didn't, he didn't expect any pushback because there was no content in it that he would have assumed would generate controversy and, but apparently and, and he's a national treasure yes <laughs> i don't deserve to be subject to this who do you think i am clark Assume gable this is um, pro forma correct yeah <laughs> you're not gonna hold there. my communism against me are you i don't think anybody but chaplin could have made a phobe in 1936 with a hilarious cocaine scene <laughs> yeah. so I mean, he wouldn't have been wrong necessarily <laughs> he gets but, a like there were like there were six scenes that were order cut and they actually had to push the release date back from January 16th because of course he had scheduled the release date before submitting it to the censor because again as Andrew said it was like this is strictly pro forma right you're not actually going to ask me to reshoot any of this I haven't um, so made movies in five years but I assume <laughs> not much has changed right yeah it, it works the same way right um, but yeah, so he was ordered to cut uh, six scenes on the account of vulgarity, um, which was referred to in columns. I can't find exactly which scenes uh, were cut. Were they all he... involving a minor? <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> you keep saying you don't actually want to talk about this, and yet... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, love, I love that Andrew is both the person who's like, we shouldn't talk about this, but also let's talk about this. Um, I'm sorry. No, they... <laughs> Let, 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 yeah, do we do we do we want to talk about that a wee bit? Um, okay, let's 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 actually let's draw the poison out of the wound and let's talk about this then. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Andrew, so I'm um, I'm aware not to the extent that Darren is, but um, of Charlie Chaplin's kind of personal history with um, uh, uh, underage girls, um, to the extent of like falling in love with them and um, uh, marrying them. Or eloping. Yeah. And, yeah. and eloping, running across state lines. We talked about this, like, during production of The Circus and things like that, where he was actually chased by federal marshals, where he had to, like, hide the film reels and smuggle the film reels across state lines because he was being pursued, not unreasonably, for, like, absconding with underage girls. Yeah. And and, and that, that this is a, a film where the uh, main character... Uh, perhaps platonically absconds with an underage girl. Um, I um, or would it would it be accurate to say abscond? <laughs> um, they're they're really co-conspirators. I don't know. Well, I think that's the thing that is kind of interesting about this because, like, we mentioned What's and he again trying to say, I wonder, like, is he trying to? Um, is, is he, he trying? Is, is, commenting on it do you think is he engaging with it does yeah. he want to kind of suggest it by it drawing it to mind it would be insane if he's if he's not aware of kind of the like is is it him trying to because well you, there was press coverage as we kind of discussed with the circus there was press coverage around Lita, Gay, Lita Gray back in the late 1920s like there was a 50 page document from 1927 in which she alluded in which she suggested that like 35 year old Chaplin seduced her when she was just 15 years old you know? right and like, um, is is Chaplin's kind of contention with this movie that like, oh, I just fall in love with them. Nothing like untoward happens. I do take them away and we go places where we sleep in separate rooms and um, and I'll probably like divorce them by, um, <laughs> <laughs> before anything happens or we'll have it annulled. Um, so it's it's really not as bad as you as you all think. Um, well, I, mean, I don't know. I'm going to throw this over to Dean in a moment, but I'm going to give Dean a chance to prepare for this because I feel like this isn't an ad question I should just bring on a guest randomly. Um, so while Dean is taking a moment to prepare for that, it is worth noting the original ending for this movie, which is kind of interesting in terms of its treatment of the gamine, um, is that originally the gamine was supposed to go off and join a covenant and become a nun. And oh. so the tramp would walk hmm. away at the end, like leaving her behind because she had found a spiritual calling. So that perhaps fits your reading um, of the movie in that way, where it's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll run around, we'll have adventures, but there'll be nuns at the end. So don't worry, nothing inappropriate happened. But Dean, is like, is is that shading there for you? But he's is a new shirt kind of character in some way, kind of. Or... But, but I mean, I would argue like the, the tramp is quite lusty and quite sexual yeah, in he is, his definitely. earlier movies. Like just here he's chased. And I was wondering if it was because of the production code. But your reading is interesting. Sorry, Dean. No, uh, what I what I find interesting about about the Gamine and and the, like because you could just have her be on the run because she's not paying. She she's like like delinquent on the rent on on the house now that her dad's dead. You know, but but making it be that that she's supposed to be in like ju like juvenile care, um, even though she's played by a clearly adult woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and. 
And for most of the film, you could easily not realize that the character is supposed to be I'm not sure what the age of majority was in the US at the time, but is is, you know, underage, whatever that, that age was. But then they show you that big close up of, of like the warrant for her that just says like juvenile in huge letters and you watch yeah. the guy write absconded from a ju- or escaped from juvenile officers and it's like why charlie like i i'm this this isn't why i'm a death of the author guy it's just the way i think about films but i'm i'm generally not given overly given to to like biographical readings and stuff right. but something like this i'm just like charlie what were you thinking like you could have just avoided this whole this whole topic i i don't know what you're trying like are you just trying to reassure people like like what like you were saying andrew it's just it's such a strange strange thing because it's clearly adult adult woman playing the character and everything about the way that she behaves even she she behaves like an adult woman like a young adult woman certainly but like she gets a job in a cafe as a dancer she like when she's stealing the, the bananas when she's first introduced for the kids like like you get the sense like here's uh, someone who's grown up here yeah. and yeah. knows their way around the place and is helping out the kids who live here but then when her father dies apparently she's supposed to be taken into state care it's all it, it's it's one of the, the 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 most baffling parts of the film um luckily not not it doesn't take up a huge amount of of the film but but it takes up enough of the film that, that it's almost impossible not to not to go wait what why why is it why is this happening why are you making those choices because they are all choices exactly exactly it's it's maybe it's maybe um a little bit um uh, ironic of me to 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 criticize that part of the movie i i don't i don't even know if i am criticizing it it's it's just kind of it's just a bit peculiar but mm. um, to criticize that on one hand, and also to say that like that Chaplin doesn't understand kind of like narrative structure, like the reason she is in the movie is because there needs to be a love plot of some description, I guess. And even Chaplin, um, who you could criticize for being um, too kind of vaudeville or variety show. Or kind of um, vignette, um, well, that that that's not a word. It sounds like an it was a nice word. bit of alliteration, at least. Yeah. yeah. Oh yes, <laughs> exactly. I needed a third V. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even even like like is is this um, is it churlish to 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 kind of? Uh, and I don't know if we are criticizing that aspect of the movie. But certainly to like ask a question of it, but as as to why it's there, that it's there for narrative reasons, maybe, and and thus like um, if at this the same is just time, reading too much into it. There is the death of the author to consider there, but I mean, I I do that. What's really 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 weird about it though, like what really compounds the weirdness that Andrew and Dina both kind of mentioned there. She's delightful, is, by the way. Oh, she's amazing. Paulette, yeah. Paulette Goddard, like, I, I was actually, this is the segue into talking about Paulette Goddard, is that Paulette Goddard, like, was 27 years old or 26 years old when this movie was made. She was 26 years old when she was married to Chaplin. She was not somebody who was caught up in no. that 
Chaplin-esque behavior about young women, uh, about girls, basically. She was an adult woman. She was like, she'd already been married at that point to Edgar James. After being married to Chaplin, she'd be married again to Burgess Meredith, which is fantastic. Um, <laughs> what and a Eric Maria remark. And, <laughs> and, and we've already spoken about Rocky. This is our gratuitous Rocky reference. Yeah. Uh, worst robot in in film the the modern times feeding machine or Polly's robot in in Rocky Four. <laughs> I mean, again, these are all just distant cousins. They're all related. They all tie back. But the thing about Goddard is that she was actually an equal to Chaplin. Now we are going to talk about the Great Dictator at some point in the future in this podcast, and I don't want to spoil that. But when we talk about that, we will talk about how terrible that relationship got, and how awful Chaplin was to her, and how their marriage kind of fell apart as a result. It's but when sorry. they were making this movie. Apparently, it was the happiest creative collaboration that Chaplin ever had. Apparently, this was the smoothest of Chaplin's major films. Apparently, he treated Goddard, um, and according to people around him, um, he saw her as an actual equal to him in a way that wasn't true of previous female collaborators. And we talked about how, like, you know, he, he really liked the female actors he worked with, um, Edna Purveyance, for example, like actors who he came up with through the shorts. But he really seemed to treat Goddard as an equal. And, like, film commentators and Chaplin experts point this out. You watch this movie and you compare it to other Chaplin movies, Goddard gets a lot more close-ups. Goddard gets a lot more agency and development. The gamine gets a lot more character, ironically enough, um, despite not having a name. In fact, she's introduced caring for her younger sisters, which evokes the tramp from the kid. You know, that, that kind of iconic Chaplin thing. She's equivalent to Chaplin. She's resourceful. She's playful. She gets action sequences. She's introduced in an action sequence. She's given things to do. Um, and I think Grown-up that, like, it, it's... It's not the, yeah, the not Blue Peter thing where it's like if you're if you're cutting up these bananas, ask a ask a, a grown up to help you with this. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's but like she, she's apparent and apparently like even in her personal life, she persuaded Chaplin to discard his customary costume of sneakers, white ducks, open collar, and sport coat to actually get dressed up and to take like respect in his appearance. She modernized his house, eliminating a decades accumulation of old scripts, broken dictographs, and phonograph records. Chaplin apparently hates parting with memorabilia as much as he hates parting with actual catch. By the way, this is from Time magazine in March 1936. I love how <laughs> gossipy it could get. <laughs> Chaplin hates parting with such memorabilia as much as he hates parting with actual cash. A trait so noticeable that, when he is lunching with his staff, a subordinate usually pays the check, later reimbursing himself from company funds. But there is a, a real sense that, like, Chaplin, like, enjoyed working with Goddard and Goddard enjoyed working with Chaplin and the two of them really work well together. And I think that really comes across. I really like Goddard here. I think the gamine is is fantastic. She is fantastic. She's got a, it's a real kind of vibrancy that you don't, that, like, like they, I don't know, is it that I just haven't seen enough um, silent movies, but, or is it just a cliché? But that the female characters seem kind of there's a sort of a um ethereal passivity quality. Often. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, passive and, and kind of like um you know, obviously like like fantastic to look at, which of course got her is 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 as well, but that she she has a real something about her um that come comes comes true very well. Yeah, she yeah. she's 
I don't say any of this to disparage any of his other female co-stars because, for example, Myrna Kennedy in in the circus I think is is like as a comic partner one of the best um, one of the best co-stars Chaplin has ever had. But in terms of like the character, like the the like usually uh, the tramp is making decisions for for these these women. Like he decides that that Myrna Kennedy is going to go away with, with the, the strong man or the trapeze artist or whatever it was in the circus. And he decides, you know, initially he's not going to tell the blind girl in City Lights um, either that he's a tramp or later that um, he, 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 that he's the same guy when she has her, has her sight back then. And like he, there, there's this, um, and it's supposed to be like, like obviously the tramp is being selfless in both those cases but he's also like removing agency right whereas um with the gamine like she's waiting for him every time he gets out of jail (laughs) she's the one who has i assume built the shack that they live in because uh, i i don't think anything resembling a professional builder was involved 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 in that she goes out and gets that job on her own and then she gets him the job which is pushing him to get the job at the cafe and you know they walk off together at the end it's very interesting actually to contrast this with the ending of the circus because the circus so many years earlier was already like the ending is like the circus i.e hollywood leaving chaplin behind to go into the sound era and then it he does another end of this or of the silent era rather and then he does another end of the silent era ending for modern times this time he's walking off with with the gamine into the into the sunset and it's for a film that is uh it, certainly in how it in, in the way it portrays the world a lot more a lot more bittersweet and tragic than than the world as presented in say the circus it has a it has a much more uplifting ending in terms of that character relationship and it's it's which almost makes it and not to circle back to this just weirder that he decided explicitly textually make her a, a teenager like what the what? we're gonna really give this character make this character and not just the performer equal to the tramp but also like just occasionally remind you she's legally a child it's very strange and like and like the, the thing is, and again, this is a small touch that I find really interesting. Like her physical comedy is very, very good. And like while I said that I, there's not much romantic kind of atmosphere there, I think, well, first of all, Goddard is a fantastically attractive woman. Um, and second of all, I think she's very keenly aware of that. Like there's a sequence where Chaplin falls out of the door and lands in the water and she has to fish him out and she fishes him out with her leg which is you know not only it's a really good gag it's a really good visual gag because instead of using her hand she uses her legs but it's also like yeah just in case you don't know goddard has really great legs and is a 26 year old woman not a teenager which is quite disconcerting when the film is like yeah but she is a teenager um just to make it kind of extra creepy but i feel like we should maybe kind of segue away from from that yeah possibly Um, and what I will do is, like, I had in my notes, Chaplin is a terrible person and wanted to make the following point. Um, but thank you to Andrew for kind of, like, freeloading this so this doesn't seem as bad by comparison. I mentioned that the shoot on Modern Times was apparently remarkably easy as far as, like, Chaplin's shoots go. Because Chaplin, notoriously perfectionist director. We talked about this in the circus. We talked about, you know, examples in, I think, City Lights where he would do scenes hundreds of times and hundreds of takes um, in ways that would exhaust all of the actors in search of perfection. This time, apparently, 
Well, first of all, we'll talk about when we get to talking about sound, but he did have a script. He worked from a script for the first time for this movie, um, although he did encourage improvisation. And we'll talk about like things like what he did with the dialogue that he wrote later on. But apparently the nightmare on this movie, um, the terrible production story was the music section. Apparently producing the music for modern times was a nightmare. Um, apparently Charlie Chaplin Jr., who is obviously Chaplin's son, remarked that watching his father compose was like getting a free performance, but he also admitted that the music associates suffered, and I quote, pure torture. Orchestrator Edward Powell nearly lost his eyesight from concentrating so hard on writing the music. The young, ambitious David Rathson, hired by Powell to help orchestrate and arrange the music with Chaplin, toiled 20-hour days, lost 25 pounds, and was often so exhausted that he'd sleep in the studio. After working similarly long days, the conductor Alfred Newman broke under the pressure, threw his baton across the stage, and yelled at his boss Chaplin, having taken a break from the studio while others plugged away, derisively saying, I'm tired of this stalling. Newman refused to come back after storming out there. Um, and apparently, and again, this is one of those things where you get to the irony and the contradiction of Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin millionaire socialist, Chaplin, apparently a ruthless businessman. He required that musicians sign a contract wherein he was deemed the sole composer. The exact wording apparently being that the music was, and I quote, entirely written, composed, and or arranged by Charles Chaplin, and you agree not to make or issue or authorize the making or issuance of any statement or claim in contradiction thereof. Artists legally signed away their authorship, regardless of how involved they were in the composition or arrangement, or even if they eventually received credit elsewhere, which is quite astounding. Like Astoundingly astute. <laughs> <laughs> His business acumen. This guy. Well, I mean, we did mention, like, I think we mentioned on, like, The, the Kid and we mentioned um, on The Circus, like, Chaplin's one competitive Oscar was for his soundtrack work on Limelight when it was eventually re-released in Los Angeles in the 70s, making it eligible for the Oscars, um, which is great. Can you imagine actually composing a score in like 1972-73 and being like, yeah, this is my year, I'm going to win the Oscar. And that's like, nominees include Charlie Chaplin's 1952 film Limelight. <laughs> uh, sorry, Dean. Oh. I wasn't aware of that about I I I knew some of the the I knew about like Newman um and quitting I I wasn't aware of the the uh the no credit clause in in the contract um the, the learning that has made the lost uh is a bit of respect for Chaplin in part just because it, it reminds me so much of James Patterson who makes all his quote unquote co authors sign an NDA exclusively about like you cannot say what percentage of this book was written by James Patterson. Except for Bill percentage... Clinton. Oh of course, of course. <laughs> I mean except for Bill Clinton is the, the motto of the of my entire lifetime in some ways. It's just like I did not have sexual relations except with Bill Clinton. <laughs> to be fair, when Chaplin did compose his film score with Bill Clinton, Clinton was exempt from that percentage clause as well. Uh, I think he rounded yeah, somewhere he around 46%. Yeah. <laughs> on one of Charles Chaplin's later films on yeah. Mr. Verdot. Um It doesn't really come up much, but we do kind of mention it. Um, Speaking and then... of inappropriate smoking. <laughs> 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 nice <inhaling>. segue. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, 
um, just to, to talk about that stupid thing that we talk about. It's um, he 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 likes he gets a drag out of a cigarette and then it's still like quit stalling, get back to work. And then when 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 he buys the cigar in the that, that scene is terrific. He yeah, gi- give, the... gives those cigars to a whole lot of children. <laughs> <laughs> it was the thirties. Like... It was a very different. It makes them robust. It builds yeah, character. Yeah. It'll it'll make Would... you strong. My doctor told me. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. the cocaine. I... Make sure you take some cocaine with those cigarettes just to balance it out. Um, one more thing I actually want to kind of talk about uh, this. And again, this is something that I think is, is really great and really interesting about modern times. It gets overshadowed by all of the stuff that we've talked about about the movie so far for very obvious reasons. But like the extent to which this is essentially um, like a great example of a work of art as a piece of pure spite in that <laughs> like a significant portion of modern times exists because Charlie Chaplin really 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 doesn't like sound in movies like there's something staggeringly passive aggressive in modern times around the very idea of a talkie film existing and having any value whatsoever where you know and again like this is mostly a silent movie most of its its soundtrack is musical accompaniment and it still uses title cards and it's very heavy on the physical comedy uh, and maybe talk about that why that is in a moment as well. But like it's notable that when sound does intrude, it's unnatural. So when diegetic sound is heard in the movie, um, it's things like the hum of machinery, the electrical equipment in the office. It's a voice speaking through a television set, speaking through a radio. Notably, when the feeding machine is introduced, like the inventor of the the machine doesn't speak. But you do hear the automated salesman pushing it. So you have this idea that in the world of Charlie Chaplin, sound is something intrusive and alien and hostile. It's notable that, like, the machines in the factory make far more noise than the people in the streets. Like, I absolutely love, for example, that one of the first things that Chaplin does when he makes a sound movie is to, like, make a fart joke. Like, there's an entire extended sequence of modern times that is built around the fact that one of the great advantages of sound in movies is that it lets you make fart jokes. And I kind of love... And the fact that at the end where... And this is the kind of thing where we talk about... the scene with the ministers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But like the fact that we're I like, like, and he, again, we... he, he was farting as well while smoking that cigarette. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, quit farting. Get back to work. <laughs> we're not paying you to fart um but like the fact that then and then obviously at the end and again this is the thing where we talk about the movie being four movies but still having a clear structure the entire structure of modern times is built towards the idea that you were eventually going to hear the tramp speak this is the last time the tramp's going to appear and so the movie kind of builds to a crescendo where the tramp is going to have to go out in front of a crowd of people. He's going to have to open his mouth and he's going to have to make word noises come from it. And like the movie kind of pitches it where it's this thing where the tramp is nervous about doing it. Um, he's uncomfortable doing it. Notably, you do hear the waiters sing, which is Chaplin basically telling you how much he hates the idea of the noise coming from these people's mouths. And like when the tramp is forced to go out there and deliver his speech, he delivers absolute gibberish. Just a series of nonsensical words um, that end up kind of riling the crowd and getting them to go wild. And I do love that that is Chaplin basically telling the audience, 
nine years after the release of The Jazz Singer, that if they want Charlie Chaplin to speak in movies, they can go take a long flying leap. And <laughs> I kind of admire like the sheer stubbornness of that, for lack of a better word, uh, which I find kind of amazing. It was incredible. It re- reminded me of that... Um... There's like a YouTube video of Adriano Celestano doing kind of like singing a song in English as it sounds to Italians. And that this song was um, Italian as it sounds to English speakers, I think. Because like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this it's it's um, it's like um, it's nonsense, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. But the, 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 what's it called? The, um, I have it written down. It's um, Prisin Colin Insanin um, uh, Kinsol is the name of the um, uh, song, which um, to the, wh- whatever way they say it to an Italian ear sounds like English. <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. Um, <laughs> But like, but like, what what I do find, like, again, this is one of the interesting things about it, because like we mentioned, like the big recurring motif of this movie is the fear of modernity and the fear of industrialization and the fear of the reduction of human labor to like cogs in a machine. And I love that, like Chaplin's like, how does that affect me, a millionaire who lives in Hollywood? <laughs> I know I'm going to be asked to talk in movies. This is exactly the same sort of thing. But like, I, it does have this thing that I find really interesting. When we had, I think we had Max Tolan on last year talking about Sherlock Jr. And he was talking about like nostalgia and why he thought that, say, Chaplin's movies perform better on the list than Buster Keaton's is because Chaplin is an inherently nostalgic kind of figure. He's almost Victorian uh, in terms of like his sensibility, the fact that he wears the suit, the tie, the bowler hat, the fact that he's British, the fact that he came up in vaudeville. And I mean, we like we talk when we talk about Keaton and Chaplin, how much they invented cinema and how much cinema owes them and how much like what we associate with cinema can be traced back to Chaplin and Keaton. I guess this is a question for Dean. But like in 1936, there's something very nostalgic about modern times where it feels like Chaplin, who at this stage was, I think, what, 45, 46 years old, is kind of going, you know what, maybe my best years are behind me. Maybe the future is scary. Maybe things were better way back when. Is that perhaps fair to say about modern times, Dean? I think with regard to the the singing scene in particular, what I find really interesting on this question is, like, like you were saying early on, Pretty much all the sound is 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 not is not sounds you want to hear. It's the sounds of machinery. <laughs> it's the the only person who gets to actually speak in this film is the evil boss who appears on telescreens all over the factory. He's the only person who just speaks actual dialogue. But there's almost like I there definitely is an element where like the tramp singing in nonsense is is like a you <laughs> to the idea of sound. But I also think. That um, we tend to, from our modern perspective, look at this like kind of like a raging against the dying of the light from for someone from a different era. But there were actually really principled reasons that a lot of people were against the advent of sound. The main one being that it would destroy the universality of cinema because mm. when sa- when movies were silent, all you had to do was change the intertitles, and especially a film like Modern Times being a film about the 30s like it is obviously set in in an american like kind of society but it also obviously would travel really well for people all across the world at that time 
And I, I do think there's that, that, that as well as being a joke, it is interesting that when the tramp finally opens his mouth and produces sound, he produces sound that is universally unintelligible. Mm. He, he basically invents Simlish, for one. It's just a mashup of random French and Italian <laughs> words. Um, but, but, but what you actually, like, it's still in his, the way he's performing the song, his silly dance, his little mannerisms, and, and, you know, the thing that you, re- the only thing you actually really hear, since the words are all nonsense, is the music, and the music is still universal, because music sounds the same everywhere. Um, it feels, there is definitely a few element to it but there is also i think a reconciliation or or possibly just a resignation uh to 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 the changes that are coming obviously his next film after after modern times is his first full talkie um but there's a, the, the, like like the the waiters there's there's definitely contempt behind the way he portrays the singing waiters especially the fact that they come in just singing we are the singing waiters <laughs> <laughs> But but then once you know once the tramp starts singing, he starts enjoying himself. He's having a really good time, and everyone else is too. Like it's, he he's he's getting with the program, but he's getting with the program his way, which is which is by singing gibberish. I mean, you you that point about universality that you mentioned is is quite correct, and there's a number of things I think it's worth very quickly going back to uh, in that. First of all, is obviously that Chaplin did travel very well. We mentioned that he was very like he had huge fandom in Soviet Russia of all places as well. Um, but even today, silent films travel remarkably well. Like a B- BBC did a poll, I think in 2017, ranking the best comedies in the world. Um, they found that in non-English language countries, it was typically silent films that performed very well. So, for example, Modern Times was number one in South Asia when it came to asking what the best comedy ever made was. Um, they found that if you looked at both East Asia and South Asia, the general was second, even though it placed lower when you factor in English language sort of stuff. Um, the New York Times in 2017 reported that, like, in Greece, they were screening Chaplin's films for refugees um, who were like fleeing from across the Mediterranean, speaking all these different languages because the cha- the, the, cha- the the tramp was universal. And yes, Hugo Chavez in 2007 in Venezuela organized national screenings of modern times because he felt that it exemplified kind of what his regime was still trying to do. So I think there is something worth acknowledging in that idea of universality. Yeah, and I think Maduro that what... as well is a big fan. <laughs> the Chavez example is interesting because I haven't I haven't watched it yet, but um there's this uh, short documentary from Cuba in the nineteen sixty seven called uh Por la Primera Vez, which is about uh, when the Cuban the revolutionary government came in, they organized these mobile cinemas to go out to rural areas where literally into the 60s, no one had ever seen a film. And this documentary is, shows some people watching a film for the first time. First, it asks them what they think a film is like before they show it, which I thought, which I'm really interested to hear, hear that. But the film they show them is Modern Times. Amazing. Oh, wow. They, 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 they didn't have a whole lot of people running away from trains. Um, and I mean and but that's the thing and then I think you like the the argument that you and Chaplin are making effectively comes to to 
bear fruit when you look at like the 30s the 40s and the 50s like and the 60s when we like on this podcast we've talked about how between the 40s and the 70s there's this explosion of international cinema where europe you know south america uh, india start making their own movies and start trying to distribute them because all of a sudden silent films aren't exclusively american anymore the language that you speak is important and you can target your own market and it's not until the collapse of the code and new hollywood that like hollywood begins to truly get that global grip back again uh, which i find kind of interesting i think that universality is kind of true and fair i do think there is some nostalgia here though i do think that there is a sense of chaplin like is like maybe i'm closer to the end of my career than to the start of it uh if only because again that structure is very much like you know as two 20 minutes is the ideal length of a comedy and i will stretch to making four comedies and calling it a feature <laughs> or the fact that like the individual set pieces within the movie so for example the skating sequence which is stunning the Incredible. skating amazing. sequence is amazing even today um that is lifted directly from one of his shorts which is the rink i think that's a 1916 short um the sequence in the like in the shop recalls the floor walker he's very much recycling bits and kind of almost like going through his back catalog and picking like playing the hits which i find kind of interesting in terms of kind of reacclimatizing and resetting and we should note by the way that this is one of the things about uh modern times which we should probably acknowledge just before we finish up which is the film was not a box office slam dunk um everybody expected it to be because it was a Charlie Chaplin film, because it was the first Charlie Chaplin film in five years, because like Chaplin had been hyping it up with all his time with Einstein and Gandhi and Churchill and all those other recognizable kind of celebrities around the world who were just hanging on waiting for the next Charlie Chaplin film. But it underperformed at the box office. Um, it only earned back its budget when it opened internationally. I think it earned something like $500,000 uh, less than City Lights had, which is a big deal at the time. I think it's about 25% of the film's mm. total box office cum. And there was a real sense that audiences were like, and, and again, this is one of the things where it's, it's one of those eyes of the beholder things where some people were like, American audiences don't like movies that tell them how to think or have important political points. And you can arguably trace that to today where people are like, no, this, this movie doesn't have anything political. It's not about politics. It's about family. That's what it's about. It's about family. Um, and then there are yeah, people... Yeah, the lying. Who, what? The lying. The lying that everybody does nowadays about the content of the films <laughs> yeah. and, and stuff because they, they don't want to alienate any segment of the audience. They're... Like, oh no, I didn't mean anything political by this film with fascist bad guys or anything. No, no, it's just kind of yeah. just, just about beating the bad guys. Yeah. They just happen to be fascists. Yeah, no, this this movie where Woody Harrelson plays a skinhead who's building a wall and delivers lines like "You will not replace us." That's not political at all. That was just uh, <laughs> something we thought would be fun to put in a movie. Um, but uh, yeah, like I, I find that, or the argument is also that like maybe audiences reacted to, and again, it's it's that thing, and again to put this in context. Nine years after the jazz singer, sound was everywhere. We are we're we only Harrison's three. Politics is just legalize it. <laughs> but like, sorry, God bless him. The God nose powder. Him. But like, the, the thing is that sorry, we shouldn't we should not defame Woody Harrelson. We we um, he's all for the weed. But um, the the argument also that like audiences who are now nine years into the sound era, like three years away from the Wizard of Oz, three years away from Gone with the Wind. That they were like, I don't want to be told that sound is stupid. I don't want to be told that silent movies are the way that you should make movies. And kind of 
how that's interesting about how we talk about movies now where like we ridicule directors who want to do something like i don't know shoot on film as opposed to digital and how there's this big kind of like backlash against that sort of thing and how you know is this an early extreme example of that where chaplin's like no i i don't want to use sound and and culture is like no you you have to use sound if you want to be taken seriously or accepted is there something to be said for that absolutely um Especially because, like, uh, I find attempts to analyze why films fail uh, often pretty dumb because you'd have to ask all the people who went and didn't go to the film <laughs> to to really check. But um, sound didn't um, destroy silent cinema because every director and actor working at the time was like, oh boy, sound is coming. Like, Lode's just retired. Like, Lillian Gish didn't fully retire. She's continued to appear intermittently in films when she felt like it. But she mostly went back to the stage because she was just like, oh, up until now, I've really felt like I've been making a universal form of art and now I have to perform just for Americans? Are you kidding me? I'm out of here. Uh, like, people had, you know... It was economic forces more than anything, just as it is now with like digital replacing film. Like digital is just cheaper than film. The studios don't want to pay pay for film if they can just give you an SD card. Um, and then and then for some reason, and I don't really understand why this is, but it it, it always happens. There's always this like um, kind of wig understanding of history that like like things are all progress is always good and things are always getting better so the new thing must be better than the old thing i don't have like um in the 1920s i would have absolutely been like ra- railing against sound but since i'm in the 2020s <laughs> what sounds pretty good <laughs> what like it's more that it, it's i always find it tragic how like what kind of films are like literally logistically even capable of being made are so circumscribed by what yeah. like the people with money will let you do like even just we we just did a on our podcast a double episode on on the, the whedon cut and the snyder cut and i i don't even know if i left this in the episode but at one point during the recording i just went on this rant about like why do how tragic is it that if you want to direct blockbusters you have to make money doing it like you should be able to make big, gigantic movies that are also potentially hugely alienating to 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 huge segments of the audience. You, but you can't because you'll you'll lose like a billion a billion dollars. Like you, like Zack Snyder and, and or like the Wachowskis. They're, they're they're people who should be just like you know in a world where art was decoupled from capital, they could just go off and make their their insane maximalist hyper-stylized blockbuster films and 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 the people who like that like me could just enjoy it and the rest of you can all go watch whatever you like but instead everything has to be dictated by 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 the market i guess and it's just it's just i mean you 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 could argue that those people do get to do that because they have to to an extent (laughs) because that's true but i and you can say that like First, they have to kind of like demonstrate it in a way that's kind of like inhibited, maybe, and to to, to, I guess to I give more them mean... a chance to 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 make the 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 big one. And then once they've done that, the studios are going to be like, "Well, it's a gamble, but they've done it before. Maybe they can do it again." So let's. I guess just... rather than saying. The Wachowskis and the Snyders should and Snyder should be allowed to do that when when they get 
they get to do that. There, there must be hundreds of Wachowskis and Snyders out there who want to make blockbuster films just as buck wild as those filmmakers, and 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 we'll never get to see the inside of those people's heads because there's room for exactly three people to do it, and 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 two of them are siblings. So there are billions of people who um, will never be alienated. <laughs> exactly to the extent that these hundreds of people could um yeah but um, like and i, I guess i, I agree to... like I, I i think um um one of the good things about the pandemic i think has been a chance to to see um i think um uh, like the, the more esoteric art yeah, well, the gro- growth of streaming and kind of like the the chance to see kind of movies that probably wouldn't um, have found as big an audience if uh, if the um, kind of blockbusters the... were in cinemas exactly dominating yeah, yeah. culture, um, yeah. and then you 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 do get things like you need some kind of like cultural cachet, I think, to 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 get movies made. So, um, or, or it needs to be like at the right time or something, but there's stuff like, like I, I think of a recent movie, um, um, and it kind of relates to this movie as well as sorry to bother you. Like, I feel like that, mm. that's like <laughs> extremely alienating movie, but, it, but it's maybe kind of like the, the, like having, um, the, 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 the coup or the coup, um, as like, a um, and there being enough people wanting to make the movie just kind of meant that it, it happened. And the fact know. that Boots Riley's probably not going to get to make another one after that. Like, that's the thing, is that, like, yeah. the movie didn't perform particularly well. Um, so, for, even though it had a modest budget. You know, so, I mean, that, that, that's I feel like the thing. it's found I know, its audience, though, you know? Like, I, I know, I know, but it's sad that that audience can't support, you know, more movies like this, as opposed to just, well, we tried it and it didn't really work. Like out there, there are fans who are like, um, "I love Boots Riley. I love his music. I love that one movie he made. Um, <laughs> I, w- I want to get into Boots Riley business, and I'm 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 right, and I'm the only person who's going to back this person. I'm going to make billions. Um, yeah, um, and I am luckily a Russian oligarch. And he's but uh, okay, and then just one more question, kind of on on that tangent there, because I I think something that Dean said is kind of interesting there, the idea of like progress always being better, is that I think it's interesting that you have the transition from color to from black and white to color that happens, you know, in the thirties, forties, and fifties, and gradually, it, you know, we get an acceptance that it's possible for a movie to be in black and white, um, and you know, like this year, for example, you know, you've had an explosion. You had like Belfast by Kenneth Branagh. You have Tragedy of Macbeth by the Cohen by Joel Cohen. I think it is. Is it Joel Cohen? Mm. Yeah. Same guy um, with Garfield. Have... <laughs> 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 one of the two. Um, and then you also, you obviously also have like Come On, Come On, for example. And you know, even even recently, you had like um, that movie with um, Zendaya and John David Washington. Um, what was that one called? Oh, Slim and Oh no, no, no. No, Dean is wincing. <laughs> no. Dean is wincing. Michael, Martha, Marcy, or something. No, no, it was no, not Martha, Marcy, Mason, Mary, Dean. It, yeah, it, yeah, it's just like Michael and Mary. I don't know. Some Malcolm shit like and Maria. That. Malcolm and Maria. I haven't Maria. seen it because because I just there's some films that I'm never going to watch just because 
I, there's no way I'm going to watch them and not have Twitter in my brain about it. It's just not going to be a good time for me, you know. But like, uh, I, I kind of, you know, you do have this explosion of like, there are black and white films. And even going back, you know, things like The French Dispatch, um, things like, you know, the the, the movie sort of the, the one that uh, The Lighthouse, which Andrew loves, for example. But this uh, even passing this year, for example. But the idea that you can have these movies that are black and white. and it's morality, that, actually. There, there, there's a black and white version of that. Well, it's, um, that's from 1946, I think. No, no, no. Oh, the, the, oh of, um, of the, the Galliero del Toro one. Um, ah, interesting. Yeah, the, yeah, well, I mean, you even do have, like, the black and white alternate cuts of things like, say, Logan, for example, uh, or... Mad um, Max the, Fury Road. Yeah, or, sorry, or, Snyder Yeah, no, I didn't, but, like, Zack Snyder's Justice League, which we'll be doing a special four-hour podcast on that version alone of sometime <laughs> soon. Um, no, no, we won't. That, that, that way lies madness. But, like, we accept that black, black and, and white can be... A, <laughs> that we accept that like um we accept that black and white can be an aesthetic choice but it really doesn't seem like silent is accepted in that way i think like you have the artist obviously is a big deal and a big exception but there isn't really a market for silent movies anymore and i i just want to because this is the last silent movie i want to throw that open to dean and to andrew like is like like is does that make you sad do you miss silent movies should there be a market for them that 1000% absolutely I, I, it's the tragedy that weighs in my heart all the time and uh one reason I'm really excited for uh I don't know if you've heard that Charlie Day has a film coming up El Tanto uh Charlie from from It's Always Sunny it's um he plays like this mute character who accidentally becomes a Hollywood star and I'm basically imagining it as like a like a Keaton type character accidentally wanders into the present day and I I, I and obviously everyone else is going to be talking, but there's there's going to be... I'm really excited just even to have one, one character be silent in a movie just is lighting up my heart with hope. For for, for me, I think um, uh, talkies are a great way of non-Americans learning to speak American. <laughs> yes. They have they have reruns of Friends for that. Don't, don't <laughs> exactly, worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh. France is actually, I think, more popular in the territories than it is in in the United States. Like that, absolutely, like, it is. Um, uh, Irish people and Australians and that, yes. like, really are really into it. Um, My sister rewatched all of Friends. Sorry, watched all of Friends in lockdown, which is insane to me because surely there is new stuff to watch. But she was like, "No, I want to watch something from when I was barely alive." Sorry, <laughs> same. What? Same. I I watched. I prop. I, obviously, I've seen Friends before, but I I watched Friends for the first time during lockdown, um, and uh, it turned it turned out the Friends was great. I was. <laughs> I didn't you turn off Twitter it, in my brain. Um. <laughs> the next the next global pandemic, I'm going to watch Frasier because I've heard it's very good. <laughs> uh. You should always be watching Frasier. <laughs> Um, okay um is there anything else we, we haven't talked about modern times that anybody wants to talk about so andrew dean anything that we haven't discussed already that you think merits discussion anything we haven't simply had it could be a gag a scene a character a beat a theme um so anything that that kind of you you want to talk about let me check my whiteboard full of irregularly it's behind uh, the brazil poster notes. <laughs> no that's just the speed uh, racer poster um, <laughs> no actually do you, do you want to do you want to do you want a great gag it's Chaplin. It's that does not work in an audio medium, but we appreciate it on the podcast. <laughs> uh, I think the only thing I want to say that we haven't 
delves into too much is those factory scenes and the machinery and like obviously the most famous is that 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 parallel shot of of, of the tramps snaking through the inside of the machine but there i i think it must have been sometimes i like to think about like what it must have been like to watch it at the time and i'm just imagining like it only a few only a few years after you know the height of upton sinclair going around and pointing out how horrible conditions in every workplace in america were how how much of a surprise it must have been when these men fell into machines and were fine <laughs> and uh, <laughs> must have made it a really a really satisfying cathartic punchline for so many people <laughs> <laughs> it's the guy with his head sticking out while the tramp feeds him food because yeah. the machines were turned off for lunch. Oh. It's interesting. Oh cause... wait. Oh sorry. No, I was just gonna say I actually. What I actually want to talk about and just highlight is when he uses the 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 roast duck as a funnel. Yes. Because yes. the oil funnel is covered in oil, and the guy's like, "Oh, there's oil in my tea," and and but he's fine with with the roast duck. He's fine with the little whatever little bird it is being used as a funnel for his tea. Just just a great it's guy. The, it's the new keto um, fad. It's <laughs> like kind of filtering all your coffee through a roast duck. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's to, to I, test your ketones after that. Um, I do like the thematic consistency of the duck as a punchline as well, because you have the moment later on where he's bringing the food to the table and the duck gets stuck on the chandelier. By the way, I love in silent movies when you can see people shouting and they're shouting so loudly you can read their lips. And when the guy is shouting, where's my duck? It looks like he's <laughs> saying something else entirely. Anyway, and... <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's the, 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 the kind of consistency in this movie with the kind of dealing with food waste because they come into the department store to 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 make sure that the food doesn't go to waste um there is a problem that the duck is getting cold and eventually we it is never established whether it's eaten um but i do like that he eats all the food in front of him at the restaurant like yes, when he's trying to get sent yeah. back to prison i, I love that like gag of oh he's eaten all of it generally speaking it's a kind of it, it's a yeah it this is a movie where the characters want to kind of you know make the most of of, of a meal absolutely and that machine mach- machines are, yes machines are the ones that are kind of like making it all spill all over yeah, and are responsible for food waste, and are the true villains of the and, piece, according to the. And logic. I think if you throw an apple into your garden, it doesn't count as food waste. I don't think. No, because then it'll grow a tree. Biodegradable um, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I I love the grapes. I love the sequence where he's yes. just eating grapes while the cow is milking itself. Wonderful. Um. All right, then. So unless there's nothing else to talk about, anything we haven't discussed already, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. So something you're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that you think listeners might enjoy. So to give Dean a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. So um, the this movie is kind of a movie about uh, life out of balance. <laughs> or, or, or as, as the Hopi Indians would say, Koyaanisqatsi. Um, um, so I, I've been listening to some Koyaanisqatsi, and that's a movie about kind of um, the same kind of themes of um, of modern times. And it's maybe interesting if if you were just to play like Koyaanisqatsi to um, oh, to the background of like while watching the movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the. Um, 
And then, like, there are some eyes, like, there are some montage sequences. Like, the opening sequence is sheep to to kind of people walking. Yeah. And then there's sequences. And the one black sheep. Yeah. And then when he gets released from prison, you get, like, the montage of the outside world with cars and stuff. It is very Koyanaskatsi y. That is not a word, but I'm going to use it. (laughs) Koyanaskatsi esque. Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And um, the, the, the kind of, like, prison aspect of it and how he's kind of all set up at the end. Um, bizarrely reminded me of a prophet, the the two thousand and nine Jack Odiard movie, which I think is fantastic. Um, it's a it's a movie um, about the kind of uh, the Corsican mob in a in a prison, and then the 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 um, the character, the main character, is played by Tahar Rahim, um, and. It's um, it's fantastic. It, he 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 is terrific in it, um, and I'd, I'd recommend people to check that out. Also because of like the, um, oh, can 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 you guys hold on for one second? Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I'll be back. No worries. Okay. All right. <laughs> um. Sorry. How's life anyway? All good with yourself? Oh yeah, you know, as well as it is for anyone now, I suppose, <laughs> you know, it's it quite is, dull a lot of the time. It is a very but, loaded uh, question these days. <laughs> How is life? Are you really asking? <laughs> Pull up a chair and let's wrap. So what do you do yourself, actually? What do you... I, I, what I mostly do day to day is uh, watch films and, and TV, though lately I've been giving, I've been putting a lot of work into playing the entire Assassin's Creed franchise. Ooh, so what's that like? Um so what, I I came back to it because I I I basically like got pissed off at the end of Assassin's Creed 3 and and stopped playing the series for like 10 years. And then uh, my partner happened to to get the the pirate one, the one that immediately followed the one where I quit the franchise and then I played it and I was like, "Oh, this is one of the best video games ever." I've heard that uh, about the pirate his... one. I don't even know which one it is. I just know that there's a pirate one and it's good. Yeah, Black Flag. And uh yeah, it's uh I have vague notions of me and my I'm trying to talk my partner into maybe doing a podcast about the entire Assassin's <laughs> Creed franchise at some point. It's been interesting, definitely. Do you say Assassin's Creed or Dawson's Creek? Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Nothing Andrew, against Dawson's Creed. Assassin's I'm, Creed. I haven't watched it. I have no opinion. Assassin's <laughs> Andrew's like that Ben diagram, baby. That That's, Ben diagram. That is Assassin's Creed 3, basically. <laughs> Assassin's Creek. You spend so much time running along <laughs> riverbeds. <laughs> um, so, sorry, Andrew. We got you off there. No, no, you didn't at all. You didn't at all. I, I think it, it might be... No, I don't think it is the first time. I think it's the first time outside of like a gap in the spoiler zone where I've thought to myself, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wet my pants. <laughs> I need to go. <laughs> um, I was listening to, uh, please don't judge me that I listened to um, Joe Rogan's interview with Oliver Stone and he had to use the toilet several times and he was like, Joe, I'm an old man. <laughs> Um, this podcast is so long. Anyway, um, yeah, sorry. Okay, well, we are wrapping up. I apologize. I do for beg that. Your um, I, This I, is I all was, staying in, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was. Um, I was also going to say, um, the David Nassau uh, wrote a book, uh, which is a biography of Andrew Carnegie. I think it's just called Andrew Carnegie, 
and um, it kind of goes to the idea of Chaplin being this kind of industrial, this like billionaire socialist, um, and Andrew Carnegie was um, the richest uh, man in the world when he sold and the first uh, world's first billionaire when he sold um, American Steel, and that it's a steel company at the beginning of this movie, but that he was also somebody who who believed very um, uh, strongly in philanthropy, and in 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 many ways kind of created the um, the idea of of modern philanthropy as a business with the same kind of accounting that he applied to his to his steel company, but there's a kind of a contradiction, I guess in that he wanted to break strikes and bring in Pinkertons to make more money so that he could give more of it away. <laughs> um, mm. To people who really deserve it, not commies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, like, to, to, to create world peace on the backs of his workers. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it was interesting that. Also, Smile. There's so many different versions of it. There's like, the, the Knack and Cold is pretty good. It's a kind you can't of, beat Knack and Cold. Oh, sorry. No, just saying you can't beat Knack and Cold, to be honest. Absolutely, it's yeah. And it's a kind of a schmaltzy song. So, like, if you're trying to kind of find a version that's not schmaltzy, it's going to be difficult to do. But I I, I think, like, the, the... I was listening to a whole load today. Tony Bennett has a famous version. There's also a Dutch Tony Bennett called um, Wim Koopmans who has a very endearing um, Dutch pronunciation of, uh, of things. And he, he, is, he is the Dutch uh, Tony Bennett. He met Tony Bennett. And he also, he also played football for, um, what's it, what are they called? KBV Excelsior. He was a boxer for 25 years. So he doesn't look like Tony Bennett. <laughs> he looks like a person <laughs> who boxed for 25 years. But he's, he's like, smile. <laughs> um, <laughs> though your heart is shaking. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, perfect. And Dean, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? I'm going to go two TV shows and a podcast, all of which I think need need more attention. Um, one of the TV shows just ended. It's called Search Party. It's five seasons started on TBS in America. Seemed like it was going to die after season two, but then they brought it back on HBO Max because they needed stuff to put on HBO Max <laughs> once they had to push up launch of HBO Max for some for some reason. Um, and it's a it's a great show st- starring Leah Shawcat from Arrested Development. She starts off as a as a missing person mystery, and then they switch genre every season. It's just a continuous story, but the predicament the characters are in is constantly changing from like from a missing person story to then a noir, a, a trial. One season's a courtroom drama, and I don't want to spoil anything, but. It's um, it's not related to to modern times, but it might be my favorite TV show about our modern times, actually. Nice. Um, and the one that just started, and I found this completely by accident. I was on, I think, I don't know if you even know this actress, Geraldine Viswanathan. She was in, she was in Blockers. Um, she, I was on her Wikipedia page for some reason. And I saw she was on this in this show that it had this ridiculous title: Saturday Morning All Star Hits. And then I looked up on Netflix, and it's from the creators of, again, you might not have heard of this, a film called Brigsby Bear. Yes. It came out a few years ago. I and really each want episode to see that. is like, each episode of, of Smash, as the acronym is, is, it's presented as a VHS recording of a Saturday morning cartoon block 
from the 90s like it has all the vhs tears that it's and it rewinds and stuff it's like it's and and at one point this is a weirdly a spoiler for a sketch show but at one point the tape ejects and that's actually plot relevant and it but mostly it's just it's just just a really weird simultaneous like loving tribute to the saturday morning cartoon box especially the hyper commercial ones that were just to sell toys and also just like a withering withering satire of like american media in the 90s sometimes the broad the episodes get preempted by coverage of a missing person's case and stuff like that <laughs> and um the podcast is a uh, uh, vaccine the human story by um a great uh, extremism researcher called annie kelly and it's about the development of the original um the, the the smallpox vaccine and i would especially recommend even if you only listen to one episode the episode on the birth of the original anti-vax movement in the victorian era is like some of the best one of the best things i've listened to ever in a podcast really just just amazing fascinating deep history about the kind of not just the the scientific element of the development of the vaccine but the actual like human labor involved like how early on to try to try to to transfer the vaccine from place to place you had to infect like a bunch of ch- children with with you had to i can't remember exactly what it was we basically had to create this human chain of people carrying the vaccine across like on ships so they would just like get like i don't know like 24 children or something whatever and just like kind of graduate like infect one and then the other and then the other so that they had like a working sample of the vaccine by the time like the boat got to wherever it was going just like absolutely fascinating fascinating story about the development of vaccines that's, that is fascinating so check all those out all right amazing uh, so that's sir, yeah. sir, search party and smash the, on netflix smash, smash on is, netflix and the, the, the name of the, the podcast again story. is vaccine the vaccine the human the story, human story. Perfect. perfect thanks so much um and in terms of recommendations for myself, I'm going to recommend something that a previous guest recommended around Christmas time. Uh, when we talked about, <laughs> when we talked about our in our Christmas episode, some like it hot. We also spent 20 minutes talking about the Chucky franchise. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went and I I went and I rewatched the entire Chucky franchise from beginning to end, uh, including Chucky like child's play 2 which opens and closes with an extended reference to modern times it's set on the production oh line God. of the chucky factory uh which is kind <laughs> of great um and i really enjoyed it i think it's a surprisingly consistent horror franchise uh, i think somebody involved in this podcast has been pushing some sort of crazy idea like we should do the chucky franchise maybe at some point i'm not gonna say who that is but it is not me um, <laughs> but I, I would certainly recommend that uh, and it's kind of amazing because um, not, it, not it's, all the movies are on the 250 though that's the problem no no <laughs> child's play 3 is on the bottom 100 unfortunately is it um, no, no. <laughs> i love that andrew doesn't even check the list that we comment on. <laughs> yeah. i could just tell andrew that a movie is on the list it's he's like yeah sure we'll cover it. Darren. of course i know what's on the list uh as long as there are absolutely no follow-up questions, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I wholeheartedly enjoyed it. <laughs> and in particular, the recent TV show as well from Don Mancini, which is fantastic and features lines like "Kill the Twink." Um, so it's just great fun. Uh, is Chucky the ally we need and deserve right now? Are headlines I did not expect to read, uh, but I'm really glad that I did. Um, 
And Brad, Brad Dorf is fantastic. Jennifer Tilly is fantastic. They have this wonderful dark sense of humor and this wonderful riff on like 1980s slasher TV shows. So like the Nightmare Freddy's Nightmares TV show, uh, which is delightful. Like one of the episodes ends with Chucky reading a book while wearing a Freddy Krueger uh, shirt. Like what more <laughs> could you possibly want? Um, so I really enjoyed that. Another thing that I, I rewatched recently uh, because we're going to be, and it's maybe relevant for some stuff we're going to be talking about next month, I rewatched the recent prequel Planet of the Apes trilogy, uh, Rise, uh, Dawn, and War for the Planet of the Apes. I would argue they are the best blockbuster trilogy of the past decade. They are phenomenal. Uh, if you haven't seen them, they are well worth seeking out. Uh, and the reason that they're relevant is because we're probably going to be talking about Matt Reeves' The Batman, and we might be talking about Apocalypse Now. Uh, which gets remade as Ape Apocalypse now yeah. in War for Planet of the Apes. See what I did there? Because they're because they're, they're Kong, they're, they're, they're King Kong. Oh, anyway, anyway. Um, all right. What could, what are you doing <laughs> on that awkward silence? I'm going to segue <laughs> to Dean. What are you up to? Where can we find you? What you doing? So wh- where do listeners find a bit more Dean? Get a bit more Dean in their lives. Uh, my Twitter is at Dean F Buckley because I briefly wrote for a wrestling magazine and apparently I needed a higher level of professionalism in my Twitter at and I've never changed it back so at Dean F Buckley and of course then the the Sunday.net is the the website I I, I do Akira and our podcast the Sunday presents is on uh, Spotify Apple Podcasts I, I I lost Kira handles where the podcast goes I edit the podcast she makes it go places so the blog will will direct you to the podcast <laughs> if if you if you're interested. We uh we take turns showing each other favorite films of ours that the other hasn't seen. So that's that you you might wonder how belabored that premise got when we watched the Whedon cut and the Snyder cut and the answer is very belabored, but I think it worked in the end. <laughs> yeah, who picked which one is the question? I brought the Snyder cut, Kira bought brought the Whedon cut favorite might have been a loose word uh, <laughs> for the Whedon cut uh, in that episode but I, I I actually I actually think the Snyder cut's a five-star film so oh, wow. nothing ironic about my my Snyder enjoyment well, no I mean our, like again we should note like our most popular episode the past year was our episode covering the Snyder cut um, also our longest episode of the past year um, well, I, so I don't think I was like dunking on it either was I like I no, had I think, reservations. <laughs> I think at one point you asked, "Is this even a movie?" <laughs> hey, <laughs> but no, no. I mean, like that was a common question last year. I asked that same question when we got to Demon Slayer Mugen Train. I was like, "Is this even a movie?" Um, <laughs> but uh, it look, moves. We asked that yeah. today. Yeah, <laughs> the pandemic. <laughs> The pandemic is, is a, you know, it's, it's, it's just opening all these raw wounds. Um, all right, we are hoping to have yourself and Kira back, actually, to talk about network, uh, possibly sometime, maybe around May. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, all right, then, you can follow the podcast. We're on wherever you find the podcast. So we're on Twitter at the 250 We're on Stitcher. Rate we're on SoundCloud. Us. We're on iTunes. Uh, yep, Podbay. Rate us. Give us, you know, how many stars would you recommend, Andrew? Five. Whatever okay, is the most amount of of stars or like you know like us on spotify we are we are sally feel at the oscars we want to know that you like us yeah you really like us if you if you if if you just like dean um and you've thought like oh he's on he's on the 250 i'll listen to that and you don't like us 
don't give us a rating and tell us that it was bad. <laughs> um, did they continue to enjoy all of Dean and, and Kira's fantastic content? Um, tell us that it was bad. Like, drop, a, drop us a DM. Yeah, drop us a DM. Um, but or, we will or say send me uh, a letter. <laughs> like personally on a stamp. Um, interesting thing because next week I'm not entirely sure what episode we're going to be releasing. Uh, as this is releasing. Uh, Paramount have announced that for the 50th anniversary, they are rushing a restored version of the Godfather trilogy back into cinemas to mark the 50th anniversary. So with a bit of luck, if I can make the schedule work out, myself and Andrew will be talking about the Godfather trilogy and Apocalypse Now through March. We've got some fantastic guests lined up for that. However, if entirely through my own fault that does not happen, uh, we will instead be talking about the equally fantastic Doctor Strangelove with the equally fantastic Jason Coyle and the fantastic Aoife Martin. So either way, you're going to be hearing us talk about a great movie next week. Uh, check out our Twitter, see which one it is. Until then, take care, guys. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Thank you for having me on. Really enjoyed that. It was really fun. Perfect. All right, talk to you soon, all right? That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you just smile